We're officially live. Good morning, everyone, both to my colleagues on the screen this morning. Um, when we're apart, it's really nice to be able to see you every Saturday, which is why I think we do free school every week. Um, but this is actually our last, this will be our last Saturday free school of 2023. Um, yeah, which is um, pretty crazy. And today, it also makes sense that today we're going to discuss 2024, um, specifically 2024 as a year of war, economic uncertainty, um, the most consequential, consequential presidential election in U.S. history, um, as well as the 100th anniversary of the birth of James Baldwin. Um, and so without further ado, I'll pass it to um, Dr. Anthony Montero, who will begin the discussion today. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody. Uh, am I the only one that's really up this morning? <laughs> Y'all seem so chill. You know, is everything all right? Uh, you know, this is our last free school for 2023, which was a year of tremendous activity and I would say accomplishments of the Saturday free school. I think Sambarta has really kept the figures on the things that we did. How many events did we have in 2023, Sambarta? Yeah, I was saying it's hard to keep count, but I think uh, I think since February we have had uh, at least four events in Philly and uh, two in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Well, six events, yeah, yeah, and um, and I think twenty twenty four is going to be uh, uh, even a more uh, active year for us, and actually, it must be, given uh, what we and the people of the world uh, face. Uh, we enter the new year, witnesses to one of the greatest genocides ever inflicted upon a people in human history. This genocide in its moral degeneracy and actual magnitude of numbers of people murdered is equal to the Nazi Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s. In fact, the people carrying this out are themselves Nazis. They are committing crimes against humanity, which in effect are crimes against civilization. In the end, they and those who are making it possible uh, have to be tried for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And as was the case with the major actors of the Nazi regime, many of them must face the ultimate punishment, which is execution for their crimes. But there's also another dimension of this, and I think this 
conclusion is being arrived at by millions and probably billions of people throughout the world, that the raison d'etre for the establishment of the state of Israel, in other words, the Holocaust against them by the Nazis, and the belief by peace-loving and democratic forces throughout the world that the Jews of Europe could no longer live in Europe. And so the state of Israel was established in the Middle East, in land already occupied by Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims and Christians, with the assumption by many, many people, especially the progressive forces, that this would be a state based upon peace, humanity, and socialism. However, before the state could even be formed, the whole movement was taken over by Zionists whose objectives, as it turned out, were the opposite of what most people believed uh, would be uh, the outcome of the formation of the state of Israel. And of course, for us to really understand how decisions and choices were made, you would have to go back to that period after 1945, when the death camps and concentration camps were opened up, and people of goodwill saw what had happened to a people, although they were not the only ones, but to the Jewish people, and the attempt to exterminate them as a people, the horror of viewing that uh, led uh, peace-loving and progressive forces of all political positions, including communists, socialists, uh, centrist, liberals. The horror of that said that humanity must act morally on behalf of these people. However, the raison d'etre for the formation of the state of Israel is now the reason for its destruction, for its undoing. Let me put that again. The reason for the formation of the state of Israel was a genocide against the Jews. The moral authority of that state, the legal authority of that state was given and bestowed upon it because of the Holocaust, of a genocide. International law, in many respects, was rewritten because of that. The legal superstructure having to do with human rights, with genocide, with um, uh, crimes against humanity, come out of the Second World War. There were trials held in Nuremberg. Nuremberg was the city 
that was in effect the moral capital of Nazi Germany. Trials were held of Nazis, of leaders of that regime, of those who were implicated as directly involved in the genocide. Many of them were executed for their crimes against humanity. If genocide was the reason, as we say, the raison d'etre, the reason for being of the state of Israel, then its genocide of the same moral and physical magnitude as the genocide against them carried out by the Nazis, the state of Israel cannot morally or legally be justified and must be dismantled. And the criminals that have carried out this genocide and those who make it possible by shipping weapons and money and giving diplomatic cover to this regime, all must be tried as criminals under international law, in particular, for carrying out this genocide. So we enter this year facing what humanity has not faced in 80 years. That is a genocide against a people carried out in the most barbaric way. You know, when you drop a 2000 pound bomb on a neighborhood, you can't justify that as a military objective against Hamas and Al-Qassam regiments. You intend to kill human beings. And let us be real, this Zionist regime composed of men and women who are nothing less than mad dogs have done this intentionally yep. and they've said it. As far as Joe Biden is concerned, the American people have to handle our business this year. He must be driven from office. His defeat must be ignominious and complete. He is the lowest of human beings, at least Netanyahu and his clique openly say they're carrying out genocide. Biden and his clique of Zionists and, and, and war makers and neocons 
try to act like they're trying to hold Israel back. Biden, the hypocrite, who lives in a moral sewer, must be defeated. To all of these congressmen and senators who have rushed, and I should say mayors, and people who don't have anything to do with this, like state legislators and city council people like here in Philadelphia, who have rushed to, as they put it, stand with Israel. They must be drugged out and exposed. And here, I want to say first, the black politicians and elected officials. You know, in the moral equation, we don't give or nobody gives as much moral authority to white people as they do to black people. In other words, more is expected of us because we have shaped the moral framework of this country and in a lot of ways of a good part of humanity. A sacrifice, a suffering has been used to elevate humanity. And for these politicians, all of whom because they are black, are given the moral benefit of the doubt must be exposed for what they are. And in this regard, I start with the current mayor of Philadelphia, Sherelle Parker. You descended into a moral sewer. And we cannot forget that. You can't come among those of us who think and say, well, you stand with all religions. No, you stood with genocide. To Philadelphia City Council, say the same thing. To the mayor, Eric Adams of New York, your stand with this genocide have made you an enemy, not only of the Palestinian people, but of black folk. Because if you let that happen to those children, you don't think very much of black kids. We can't forget this. As far as the black church is concerned, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna to return to that, but I wanna talk about them in this context. Pretty much a bunch of hustlers, uh, people whose only or main concern is money and controlling people who are seeking something that they will never discover or find in these churches. To the black clergy who have passed resolutions supporting Israel, to those who have remained silent 
to those who I know personally, and we know, who gave some weak, irresponsible, morally degenerate justification for what's going on. Shame on you. And you exposed yourself not as a person of the gospel, but as a hustler. And frankly, I'll be real about it. I don't know that there's anything I have to discuss or can discuss with any of them. Uh, there has to be a reckoning. There has to be a reckoning. If you think this is a joke, you know where I'm at. If you think I'm playing, you know what I you know how I am. All of this is important also in light of what we talked about last week. The fragmenting of major denominations among Protestants. This is huge in the life of the United States. Uh, I had a, a very interesting discussion uh, with a good friend, um, Andrew Stewart from Rhode Island. He's very well informed. Turns out his father was a Lutheran pastor. Uh, the only equivalent to this uh, crisis in Protestantism in a major uh, capitalist country was in the 1930s and 40s in Germany, where most of the mainline Protestant and the Catholic Church either went with Hitler or remained silent in the face of his wars and genocide. The anti-Nazi forces within the church were driven out of the churches, out of the pulpit, were silenced as it were, not unlike what we've seen in this country over the past 60 years. The crisis of American Protestantism is not because of one or the other position on gay marriage or trans rights. No, no, no. The crisis emerges from a over 60 year period of silence in the face of war, poverty, and the attack upon the poor. Most Protestant denominations have remained silent. They have become transactional. Pay them and you got their voice. They're for sale. And so it is inevitable that first people will leave, but then a crisis will develop internally. So 
LGBTQ trans rights, even Black Lives Matter, is merely a signifier of something deeper and more profound within Christianity in the United States. In Germany, those who refused to remain silent broke with the Protestant denominations and went underground and formed what was known as the anti-Nazi church of Germany. One of the great figures in this anti-Nazi church, and I'm convinced a deep influence upon Martin Luther King was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Not only did Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his colleagues form an underground church, but some of them hatched plans to attempt to assassinate Hitler. Since they were not professional assassins or for that matter, knew anything about killing, their plans were easily exposed and Bonhoeffer in the 1940s, I think around 1944, was arrested, tried, and uh, his punishment was death. And only a few weeks before World War II ended in 1945, he was executed. Wow. But the interesting thing about Bonhoeffer is that in the 19, early 1930s, he visited and lived in the United States in New York. And uh, I think he went to Union Theological Seminary. But I think the significant thing is that Union's Theological Seminary was very close to Harlem, New York. And the great churches and the great movements of Black people, the poetry of Black people. So when he returns to Germany, he is a different kind of Protestant. Not so much the rational Lutheran, as it were, but now he began to understand the soul world uh, of people that people like Howard Thurman and others had talked about when they talked about Black Christianity. <clears throat> Most genuine Christians in the United States have either been driven underground or become silent in the face of harassment, attacks, lies, attempts to humiliate and discredit people uh, for reasons having to do with their moral stance, with their refuse, refusal to remain silent in the face of injustice. But then there's a deeper significance to this. 
You see, Martin Luther King and the Black Freedom Movement and people like James Lawson, who we've had the great honor and privilege to know, to host, and to celebrate his life, saw a different kind of Christianity for this country. You know, Martin Luther King kept by his side always the book by Howard Thurman, uh, Jesus. Yes, the the God of the disinherited. Is that the one? Is that the title of it? I think. But where he redefines the Gospels and literally said that Jesus was not what the bourgeoisie and the sellouts had invented him to be. That Jesus was not the God of the rich or the Messiah or prophet to the rich, but to the poor and to black people. To follow Martin Luther King and Howard Thurman and, and so many others, by the way, in their activism, in their moral witness, would mean that American Protestantism and American churches would have to cease being racist. They would have to renounce their historical connections to slavery, racism, and colonialism. And they would not. They, after the death of Martin Luther King and up till today, are as segregated today as they were during the time of Jim Crow. They said, well, look, but we have a, um, a black man or a black woman who is the head of our church nationally, as is the case with the Episcopals. Really, the Episcopalians are really the Church of England. Look, we have women, priests. Well, even that you accepted reluctantly. And, and were it not for the protest and heroic actions of people like Father Paul Washington and others, you wouldn't even have that. But if you call that progress, the people have voted with their feet. You have the buildings, but not the people. And to be real about it, you really don't want the people in there. Right. And you do not have a ministry that is worth a dime. So you can put on a lot of robes and, and burn incense and, and do ritual, 
for yourselves and those who you ultimately serve, the rich. The same goes for Methodism. Methodism has something of an honorable past in the struggle against slavery and the slave trade. But then it was always uh, not fully in or committed to the fight to abolish slavery. They were against the slave trade, but not against slavery itself. So it was like riding uh, two horses going in opposite directions. The Episcopal Church never opposed slavery or colonialism, and in fact participated in them. They have nothing to be proud of. They should be ashamed of themselves, but they're not. And that's part of the problem. There is no shame in their game, as they say. The Unitarian Universalists are very different. A proud history in the struggle against slavery. A proud history of martyrdom, of commitment in the struggle for civil rights. We should only mention and never forget the name of Mother Viola Liuzzo or James Reed, who gave their lives in the fight for Black people's civil rights and the right to vote. But then it got morally and intellectually lazy. It became silent. It became more bourgeois and capitalist. They, it became a church that comforted the rich and silenced the poor. And so when the LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter and identity politics came down, they immediately jumped on it an empty moral gesture in the face of the profound crisis of the nation. The example of Martin Luther King and of the James Lawsons and Diane Nash and Ella Baker and all of those heroes of humanity became a dim memory and like the other denominations, everything turns out to be transactional. In other words, like they say, in politics, you had to pay to play. If you had money, you had a voice. You were heard. And that's across the board. Empty gestures, for example, Look at American politics. It's an easy thing, especially now, to get behind and give your money to a black person 
especially a black woman running for mayor of Philadelphia or LA or wherever, was easy to get behind the war maker and neocon Hillary Clinton because, fa because Trump was a Nazi right. and a fascist. Mm -hmm. It was easy for them to support Bernie Sanders because he spoke out of both sides of his mouth and you didn't know what side he was speaking on on what day and you couldn't trust anything he said anyway. That was easy. But when it came to the real questions where moral integrity and courage was required, they all failed. And so they've all gone into what is an internal struggle. And all of the compromises that were made in the past could no longer be made going forward. It's like with anything else. When your whole being is predicated upon compromising what are fundamental moral values, there's nothing left. And so it is with the United Methodists who are splitting with the Unitarian Universalists. Certainly on a world scale, the Episcopalians or Church of England has already split where what they call the global South, especially Africa, is said, we don't want your identity politics. We don't want your Western moral, quote unquote, moral values. We have our own civilizations. Uh, and where the US ruling class had seen Christianity and missionaries as a part of its, what they call soft power, its ideological power over developing nations who are just coming into modernity. And this is something people have to understand. Protestantism is identified with modernity. So most African nations, uh, even up to this day in many respects, are peasant countries. Most people are peasants and are poor. So they look at the West through Hollywood movies, through slick speaking politicians and preachers and say, that is our future. And so sending missionaries, often young white people, some black people, to the global south was a way of propagating and selling the West and its civilization and values. And in the end, propping up neo-colonialism. All of the main denominations participate in this, including black ones. It's money to be made. The State Department, the government, finances and funds a lot of that. And they go 
expressing concern for the poor uh, and so on. Um, now the chickens have come home to roost. The Afro-Asiatic world, which includes South America and the Caribbean, has, as I say, peeped your whole card. They know that even when you come in the name of religion, you lie. And they don't want any parts of you. And so when you come saying, well, we're, we're going to uphold trans rights in your country. And the people will say, but however we deal with trans genderism, we don't need you to come in here to uphold anything. Now, think about it. US imperialism supporting Israeli Zionism in a genocidal war. What do you have to teach the people of the world? You have exposed your hand. Uh, now, just one thing, my last thing about the Episcopal, Episcopal Church. One of their last hopes was Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, who arose on the shoulders of the Episcopal Church in the last moments of the struggle against apartheid. Mm. To my knowledge, and I was involved, no one ever heard of Bishop Tutu. And suddenly, when they needed an alternative to the African National Congress, um conto we siswe, the armed wing, and the Communist Party of South Africa, and all of these mass movements, suddenly we hear about Bishop Tutu, an Episcopal priest, connected more to uh, the Protestant churches of England than the poor in Soweto and other townships in South Africa. And the people who had to live in exile, like the Oliver Tombos, the Alfred Enzos, the Chris Hanis, or were persecuted like uh, Winnie Mandela and others, Suddenly, the narrative centers upon him as a reasonable fighter for freedom and democracy in South Africa and not the leaders of the African National Congress who had been fighting uh, for many decades against the apartheid regime. And this was very important. You know, we call it soft power, but we see it all around us. The struggle for narrative hegemony. Who can control the narrative, the story that's being told? Whose assumptions will define the narrative space? Okay. 
Israel has successfully, up until now, had narrative hegemony, not because of Israel, but because of the US propaganda mechanisms and so on. Part of the crisis is that Israel and the Zionists and the genocidists have lost narrative hegemony. This is great credit to the American people. As they say, put some respect on their name. I'll come back to that. So we're in a new moment. Protestantism, which in a lot of ways shapes the moral space, the religious space. In other words, you can be a Catholic and still look very much like a Protestant. You know, you might have different rituals when you go to church, but the way the, the Catholics operate in the United States in many ways is not unlike Protestantism. The value of hard work, individualism, I put quote hard work, individualism and such, uh, pervade every aspect of religious life in the United States. You can be a Jew and be more like a Protestant because the values and assumptions are pretty much the same. The major Protestant denominations and for the most part followed by most uh, black denominations follow the lead of US imperialism and war and are quiet about it all up till today. In many ways, in many respects, I should say, as religious, and I put quotes around this, denominations, they have no reason to exist. They do not address the material or spiritual lives of most Americans certainly not of the youth. Look at the young people, mental illness, drug addiction, depression, and the preachers driving a new SUV. His wife is wearing all the finest clothes. His children go to private schools, not to the public schools. Right. That disconnect is a moral and spiritual disconnect. And when you can't believe your religious leader, you know, people uh, find it easy not to believe politicians because we know the profession they're in requires that they do nothing but lie all the time. 
So people would look to their ministers to tell the truth. But now they lie. They're perpetrators of a fraud. So people are trying to find a way. And it's, it's very disturbing to see, actually. Very disturbing. It's very difficult. But hopefully the people will find their way. And like in the case of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the revolutionaries, the Protestant revolutionaries in um, Germany, people will find alternative churches. They don't need elaborate and big buildings. They don't need uh, fine clothing and robes. They'll find a way. They'll do it in their homes. They'll do it in community centers. They'll rent storefronts, but they'll find a way. In other words, I'll just end. You know, the, the Protestant and Christian denominations in the United States are guilty of moral duplicity. And that's all it is. This has a lot to do with the election that's coming up. This is the most important election maybe in the history of the United States. And, you know, of course, time will tell. The ruling class uh, have made it clear that they're prepared to go to the brink of civil war to prevent a transfer of power from those who currently hold it to other forces. However ill-defined the alternative forces are, and they are ill-defined. But they're prepared to go to the brink. They did it in the 1960s when they saw mass movement for peace, for civil rights, for democracy rising, centered upon the great moral authority of the Black struggle for civil rights. They went into a policy of assassination. And it was they the ruling class and the deep state that were behind every one of the major assassinations that took place in this country, every single one of them. And every single person that they convicted of the assassinations pretty much had nothing to do with them. Nowhere was this more clear than in the assassination of Malcolm X, where the three people convicted and sent to jail were not even in the place where he was killed, the Audubon Auditorium, and they knew it. The same thing with the assassination of Martin Luther King, James L. Ray, King's family who met with him over the years were convinced 
that he had nothing to do with it. And that it was a government conspiracy that killed Martin Luther King. The Kennedy family knows it about John F. and Robert Kennedy. They took the nation to the brink. These assassinations were in effect, a coup d'etat. Dismantle the peace, democratic, and civil rights forces. Decapitate the movement. Send the people into confusion. Establish a leadership loyal to the ruling class and silent about the crimes of these assassinations. Give with one hand, but take it away with the other. That is what black people have been experiencing. Oh, the ruling class will tell us, we're committed to the civil rights vision of Martin Luther King. We gave you Barack Obama. But the next question is, was he committed to the vision of Martin Luther King? Of course not a dilettante, a debutante, a narcissist, an empty suit, you know, a ventriloquist put the voice in him. He didn't have a voice. He didn't have an idea. There's nothing to celebrate in the election of Barack Obama, certainly by Black people. But now the ruling class is faced with a crisis greater than the crisis of the 1960s, and it's only deepening. You know, the polls showed as the Biden administration and the ruling elite went after Trump in ways that everybody knew uh, had no real uh, legal foundation. It was an attempt to silence him to end his presidential run. They're continuing it. These BS uh, cases in New York and trying to take all of his money from him, this thing in Georgia, and then, then of course, the, uh, the Justice Department and now taking him off the ballot. Everybody sees what this is. It's a political assassination short of physical assassination to render him incapable of conducting a credible campaign. The people have not been fooled. And now Biden, the Mr. Nice Guy, the Mr. Normalcy, the Mr. Uh, white Man Who Can Do No Wrong. As Netanyahu and them began their genocide against the Palestinians, he ran over there hugging this man. Now you just finished hugging Zelensky in Ukraine, 
who was backed up by the neo-fascists there. And uh, just parenthetically, Zelensky got to be very, very careful because his life is not guaranteed because people he's dealing with will kill you with the quickness. That's what they're all about. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get into all the details, but that's what they do. So this cat is running around trying to get money and trying to secure his uh, future here in the United States down in Florida somewhere. And uh, and them, them fascists are running amok over there. And uh, already they done assassinated a number of people in Ukraine and assassinate some people in Russia. But that's what they do. And so Zelensky tried to play a game with them. I'm going to play ball with the Nazis. And until, you know, I can't play no more and then I got to flee. You know, I think his wife has already fled. But anyway, that's a whole nother question. But Biden went over there, you know, hugging Netanyahu. And almost overnight, he lost all the young people. 70% of young people, 18 to 35, 40, I guess, to you throw that in, are for a ceasefire. Biden leads, pardon me, Trump leads Biden by six percentage points among young people. Okay? Now, this takes us to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Very promising beginning. But then you hit the question of genocide carried out by the Zionists. And you apologizing for that while talking about your uncle's peace speech in 1963? And I mean, it's, I mean, you left speechless. First of all, the guy's voice is so gravelly and messed up that he can't even lie good. I mean, he's, he's in, I mean, it's going to be a, it was going to be a, a difficult thing for him to run a campaign with that voice. Now, how that voice came about, I know he shot a lot of dope back in his days, uh, probably drank a lot of whiskey. You know, he did a lot of things. Now, well, now he's into self, uh, self-improvement, lifting weights. Uh, you know, he's like a bodybuilder. You know what I'm saying? But still, the effects of all that heroin is, is going to stay with you. So he, he going to come out here on, um, what's that, uh, the hills? No, not the hill. One of them other ones. Uh, and they interviewing him and shit. And he tried, he justified that. Now, here is the problem. He just lost his major base, potential base of support. Young people disenchanted with both political parties. Right, right. So obviously, the Zionist got something on him that he don't want to come out. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you listen to, I mean, I, I don't think he's, you know, like all that intelligent. But to be this dumb, okay, okay, that's him. Now, Marianne Williamson, spiritual teacher, so-called Buddhist, so-called, you know, follow Martin Luther King. 
Now, you're only at 2% in the Democratic Party. They done put you off the ballot. You can't, there ain't going to be no primaries. I mean, they done dogged you, treat you like you ain't worth nothing. You supporting Israel? Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, Cornell West stands up. Great, Cornell. You are beautiful. You heroic in the face of this. Only problem is we got to get some money to get you on the ballot because you messed up going from party to party. But anyway, that's another question. But now Trump. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Donald Trump, you're still talking out of both sides of your mouth. Come clean. Yes, please. You have young people, and this is very significant. Black folk, the key strategic force in American politics. Black people, by what they do, can upset the entire uh, uh, ruling class strategy. Biden and the Democrats are indeed concerned with the fact that they're losing the youth vote. But now when they look out and see upwards of 40% of black men, and I contend that black women ain't gonna be that far behind because all that black girl magic and all that bullshit feminism, that, that ain't working no more. Don't nobody wanna hear that, you know, men or women. 30 to 40% of black people will either vote for Trump or not vote at all. And they're saying that Biden and the Democrats, you've, you've used us long enough. And in this crisis, we refuse to be used again. But the other thing, and polling data doesn't fully express this, Black people don't like what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. It kind of touches us in a certain way that maybe it doesn't touch most Americans. For us to see children killed, children's legs and arms blown off, children blinded, and then when they see rich Zionists throwing their money around. And we know about that. We know how they buy, have bought black preachers and black politicians. We know about, we've experienced it. When we see them talking about, we're gonna withdraw our money because you had a, a conference of Palestinian writers at the University of Pennsylvania. Or we're gonna withdraw our money from Harvard. You know, all of these threats. Well, first of all, we've experienced before, you know, all you got to do is read Baldwin on Blacks and anti-Semitism. We see it all as racist, as white supremacist, which it is. And then you add to that this open killing of children. 
you know, there's something in our heads. I don't, I'm just saying from, from a black perspective of slavery. See, that takes us back to slavery mm. and the slave trade and children being ripped up from their communities, from their families. You know, all of that, all of that memory, even when it cannot be fully articulated, is triggered when we see this. So, the Democrats have lost upwards of 40% of black people. Take a city like uh, Philadelphia. You don't have us no more. You can send all of the plantation politicians, all the so-called labor leaders, black and otherwise, into our community, all of the liberals and so-called so social Democrats talking all that, I don't wanna curse, all that BS. It ain't gonna work this time because we're seeing with our own eyes. Then, in states like Michigan, and Michigan in particular, the Arabs have said, never will we vote for this cat. Mm -hmm. By the way, there's going to be a major march, which I hope we can attend on January 13th. And I talked with Garland Nixon yesterday. We had a wonderful conversation, by the way. He loves the free school. Made me feel very good, you know, because we need all the love we can get because too often we get too much hate, but he loves us. And he's, he was at the one where, you know what they said, 300,000? And he said to me, at least 300,000. This one, he predicts, will be over 500,000. The Arabs and Palestinians are mobilizing. And certainly, along with the anti-Zionist Jews, the Hasidim, the Jewish Voices for Peace. This will be one of the great anti-war demonstrations in the history of the United States. But if that were not enough for Biden and his crew, every day in this country, anywhere in this country that you go, there are demonstrations all over the place. Small demonstrations where people are witnessing and saying to their public, to their friends, to their family, I condemn genocide all over this country. The, the civil disobedience actions at Grand Central Station in New York, at 30th Street Station in Philadelphia, on I-76, shutting it down in Philadelphia. In the spirit of civil rights movement, where people are saying, we will reclaim our morality. You ain't going to take it away from me. Families are splitting up. One young woman told me her sister doesn't speak to her. Sister's such a hardcore Zionist, saying that you, 
by you supporting the Palestinians in the ceasefire, you endangering the lives of my children. I said to the young woman, don't take it no kind of way. There ain't nothing to talk about now. If there's not a consensus around right and wrong and the murder of children and the dropping of 200 pound, 2,000 pound bombs on kids and mothers, there's no basis for a relationship. You know, maybe somewhere down the line, y'all can get back together. But for the time being, you stand for your morality. And if, if you can't find love there, there are many people who will love you based upon your standing on principle. And that's genuine love. The year of Baldwin. The year of Baldwin occurs as it should. Right. In a crisis like this, the nation and the people need James Baldwin, even if they never heard his name. Christians need James Baldwin. Jews, you American Jewry, y'all really need James Baldwin bad to hold y'all in to come out of that. You need James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. yeah. Muslims, you need James Baldwin. At a moment of reckoning, of moral and political reckoning a voice of prophecy and truth like James Baldwin's is necessary. You know, the year of Baldwin will exceed the year of Du Bois. Here in Philadelphia and beyond, the year of Du Bois altered the ideological relationships among the people. You can't talk about science and truth in a lot of circles without mentioning the name W.E.B. Du Bois. Many people who for all kinds of stupid reasons, including quote, Afrocentricity and that fraud, had scandalized and smeared Du Bois and had upheld Garvey, Marcus Garvey, who was a very small man and quite insignificant and has been, was re, reborn as a reaction against the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. It was a dead issue until then, you know? Uh, and in a lot of ways, he was shown to be a, a, an abject opportunist and a, a hustler, you know, trying to get paid. Well, as an opposition to King and the civil rights movement, the cultural nationalists and neo-Pan-Africanists, as Winston defined them, 
raised Garvey up and they're still trying to raise him up, you know? But we, we I think, contributed to altering these ideological relationships, which in effect said that the black struggle in its fullest potentiality is world transformative. That we as black folk do not operate in a narrow quote ghetto of blackness and African garb and African drumming. That we are a modern people that have transformed and contributed to the transformation of humanity, that we link our struggle to the Indian independence movement, to the Chinese revolution. It was we who when hardly anybody outside of India knew who Gandhi was. We sent emissaries to India to meet with Gandhi in the 1930s. It was we who in spite of all of the threats and terrorism of the US government, found a way to get to China and shake the hand of Mao Zedong and Joanne Lai and Judah and all them cats, man, and Madam Sun Yat-sen. We down with all that. It was we who grasped the hand of solidarity with Kwame Nkrumah and Patrice Lumumba so suddenly we're going to get off the stage of history in order to cleanse and purify our consciousness to so-called recenter ourselves in ourselves a people in itself rather than people for itself and hence for humanity no we in some small way contributed to the defeat of that narrow nationalism, a suicidal nationalism. And in so doing, elevated King. And you know, like we got our, our, our hoodies with W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King, we marched to achieve our nation. Just being black, there's not a black person of just common sense who would not agree with that. And increasingly, America will understand that. For people that are, you know, to achieve our country, that's Baldwin. So in that phrase phrasing, it's Du Bois, King, and Baldwin. I just want to end on this. I think we're beginning to see enthusiasm around the year of Baldwin that we didn't see around the year of Du Bois. The central branch of the Free Library, huge institution. Um, the I spoke with the founder and director of the Black Writers Museum yesterday such enthusiasm 
And, you know, we hadn't spoken for a long time. I was even, you know, a little hesitant and shy. How will he receive me? You know, I'm one of them people, I don't like to be, I don't like to have the door slammed in my face. And it, it really takes a toll on me emotionally. So I have to take my time and get myself ready for whatever the circumstances or outcomes are. Such enthusiasm. Yes, Tony, we want to be a part of that. And yeah, you know, we went to meet with the director and her assistant at the Bloxham Collection, one of the most important collections of Black um, documents and, and uh, art. Uh, it is on the level of what is considered maybe the, the premier place, and that's the Schoenberg Collection in, in New York. It is that important. Its collection is that valuable. Uh, I haven't gone to the barns yet because I'm still feeling that a little bit because you know I was under Lincoln's control and they took it. Lincoln is Lincoln University where I graduated from. But you know, I'm certain that with the proper approach, the Barnes collection will find a way to partner with us in this year of Baldwin. Uh, I would say right now our weakness, and I think it is not our weakness, it's a weakness of the situation, uh, the churches. Uh, I think we made a decision that we would avoid the politicians because for example, if we invite uh, Cornell West to speak, which I hope we do. Uh, we don't want any blowback from them talking about, we didn't know y'all were gonna be political. <laughs> like, like what was Baldwin anyway. But so, uh, this year is going to be a year of struggle. I think the free school has the best outlook, the most complete and thorough analysis uh, in our writings, the avant-garde, the journal, uh, Vishwabandhu, Vishwa uh, the intercivilizational dialogue between India and China, uh, the fact that Baldwin, years of Baldwin will be in Chicago and New Mexico and I don't know where else, I hope other places. Uh, but the year of Baldwin fits this time and the needs of the people more than the year of Du Bois fit its time. That was 2018. So I'll stop there. I'm sorry if I went a little too long, Emily. No, you never go too long. You always go too short. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With friends like you, I don't know what to do. That's why I say to people, don't worry if people don't talk to you, come to the free school. No, yeah. And you'll find love and you'll find uh, really happiness to tell you. The yeah. Truth. <laughs> yeah, happy family. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Alice. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, Alice can make it today, but my mom is next to me again. You just can't see her. But ah. she's 
Yeah. Oh, I thought I saw her moving yeah, around in there. Yeah, I didn't even force her this time because usually I, I'm like next to me, but this time my mom came herself. I saw your dad walking around. Oh yeah, he was listening for a bit. I told him I said, well, both of them, I said, hello. Hi. Well, okay, well, per usual, I had all these notes where I was like, oh, I want to talk about like civilization and that sort of thing. But then you ended with Baldwin. So I guess I'll have to start with Baldwin. <laughs> well, because when you were talking about James Baldwin, well, first of all, I just finished his short story, Sonny's Blues, which I really recommend people read. And it's a short story, so it's not long, but there's a lot in there. And maybe I'll talk about it a little later, but like thinking about the year of James Baldwin, but also James Baldwin, in today's crisis, both in America and the world, there's something that really, for me, like I really feel like there's something important about the way, and also I'm, I am influenced by the short story, Sonny's Blues, where there's something about the moral edge, like the necessity of the moral, like the moral center, or like the way truth and morality and the moral center and love are all enwrapped in, like basically in what I feel like in America is a civilizational crisis. Like it's in some ways, okay, yes, sure. People may say it's a, we're, we're being pushed to the brink of civil war or the possibility of civil war. But actually I think with the movement around Israel, Palestine and the way that there is so many people who are, like you said, organizing protests and marches around Palestine, I really think it's it's really about the American people protesting what they see as genocide. And it's a question of, well, what is American civilization based on? You know, it's almost like Americans trying to separate themselves from a dying Western civilization or assumptions that they didn't realize that their existences were based upon. And, and so I really see it as almost civilizational, but I find that important because Baldwin, I think in a country like America, there's something about like Baldwin speaking in the same vein as King. And King is like King was so assassinated. He was assassinated, but also even after his death, his his true ideas have been purposely assassinated, which is more of an assassination. And there's something that King said, like we always say in a free school where King was like, we are we are a country, we're a society, we're a civilization that has put more weight. We have advanced so much scientific, scientifically and technologically, yet we are so far behind spiritually, morally. And there's something about this country that where Baldwin becomes so important because Baldwin speaks to this thing of like, yeah, this question of the moral, like the morality within the morality of a civilization or the, like, I don't know, the way the mor morality or the moral edge becomes so important in basically political, like this um the revolutionary struggle for people's democracy yeah there's something about that that i thought a lot about when you were talking and then also when you're talking about the year of du bois and the year of baldwin and the work of the saturday free school i think there's something really important in some ways that yes we were like lifting up du bois's words and ideas for 2018 and here we are in 2024 such an important year and i do think i agree with you i think it is the most important presidential election in american history thus far and especially with everything 
like even i mean everyone knows it it's why everyone is making such a big deal over the fact that maine and colorado are taking a clause from reconstruction era and suddenly using it against trump like isn't that interesting you're taking a clause it becomes a question of the constitution but not just a document but it becomes a question of also like the center of america the legitimacy of american democracy procedural democracy whatever you want to call it and but in some ways i think there's something anyway so there's something important about baldwin and du bois their ideas and their words for this time but also the way that they both du bois and baldwin bring up king again like how important it is that we're using du bois and baldwin to speak about King, Martin Luther King Jr., who he was all this time, like not the radical King, but the Martin Luther King Jr. who was this whole time. And I think that's important because for someone who has been so purpose deliberately misconstrued, you have to use Du Bois, you have to use Baldwin, some, you have to use them to like bring up King again. Um, and I just wanted to say that because in Du Bois and Baldwin, it's like, in some ways it's their ideas and it's there, it's the way that they both influence and have, and then Baldwin, for example, who has been influenced by Martin Luther King Jr., who make the case again, who like bring Martin Luther King Jr. up again as an American revolutionary, someone who is prophetic, someone who is complete, someone who really is not just the father of a new nation, but in some ways such a, it's like, you know, in the Asian cultures, there's, there's this idea of the teacher, like the teacher in some ways is just as important as God. And here, like, you know, and King, King is like that spiritual political teacher for our time today. Um, and Baldwin makes that case. Um, yeah, I guess the last thing I want to say is just that I was reading this um, when I was thinking about 2024 and like all the crises that intertwine into and what I feel like is like this global civilizational crisis. In some ways, it's a, it's a question of civilization, I think, human civilization. But um, I was reading this article in The Telegraph by this, I've never heard of him, but maybe you have, Doc. His name is Joel, Joel Kotkin. But it's called, it's called America is Unprepared to Fight a War on Three Fronts. And then the subtitle is, The Democratic World is Sleepwalking Once Again Towards Military Disaster. And there's nothing that new about it. But what I thought was interesting was he, I think he skews, he's a conservative, I think, or if not a conservative thinker, he's one of, I think he's one of those, he's, I think he um, works in California at some university that I forget, but he's an intellectual that I think maybe is more of a pragmatist. I don't know. I don't really know the right terminology for him, but he's not saying anything new, but he brings up this thing again, where he says, he's like, what we're experiencing today, similar to what Free School has said, what we're experiencing today is not what Francis Fukuyama anticipated would be the end of, what was it? The end of, um, shoot, uh, the end of history. He says, we are seeing Samuel Huntington's bleak vision in his 2011 book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order. And whatever, what he's, what he's really saying is he's noticing the same thing that we're saying, which is, it's not what Fukuyama thought would be the end of history. What we're seeing is actually a civilization, especially with Israel-Palestine, for example, a civilizational war. A, you know, it's it's civil, it's a civilizational remaking, an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world. And it's interesting because he said he was like the reason why, when you look at the world situation today, you have to look at it on three fronts: economic, 
like economics, economics, like um, sustain, like economic strength or whatever. He's saying we have to analyze the Western world or America. What he really means is America, but he says Western world to make it seem like it's not just America, that somehow Europe is a major player, but really it's about America. Um, he says you have to look at the economic um, strength, military strength, and then internal morale. And I thought that was interesting because he's basically, he makes the argument, America is, America is economically, China will be the economic superpower by 2050. He goes through all the statistics, the numbers of 70% of like, whatever. He even talks about how America has too much reliance on Taiwanese semiconductors, which are not just necessary for things like techno like technological devices, but more importantly, military weapons. Um, and what happens, and that's the great danger of what happens if China decides like to take some action around Taiwan, whatever. And he goes into the military question too, where America, like everyone has said it, but not a lot of young people want to fight for America. And then, but he says the most interesting thing to me was he makes, he says the biggest question is that of the internal morale of the American people. And I don't think that, I don't think that that's much different than, um, I forget who said it, but it was that form, like military official in America who said the greatest danger to America is not external threats like Russia or China. It's the internal threat of its own people who like do not, the, in, the threat, Amer American people on the inside who do not trust, do not follow, do not believe in the American ruling elite anymore. Um, but he says, this guy, this writer, Joel, um, Joel Calkins says something interesting in this Telegraph article where he says, um, the Western world's material issues provide enough of a challenge, but our spiritual degradation may prove fatal. And then he, but he interprets the spiritual degradation as the fact that most young people, the crisis of young people in Europe and America, where he says most young people in Europe and America don't, do not have pride for their country anymore, and they've become anti-Western because they believe in the oppressor or colonialist narrative. So, you know, he's coming from that angle. But I agree that it's our spiritual degradation may prove fatal. He says, and then he says, um, a recent report from the future of democracy at the University of Cambridge found support for democracy in the West falling most among 18 to 34-year-olds. So maybe that's that matches what you were saying, Doc. And he says, just as we need the most, it's nigh on impossible to find anyone in the West who resembles Churchill, Roosevelt, Truman, or even Nixon or Reagan. The EU, the EU bureaucracy certainly is no substitute for de Gaulle. The West cannot win or even stay relevant in the clash of civilizations if it does not believe in itself and continues to neglect the physical means to protect its interests. But see, I found that so interesting that he said, and we don't even have the Churchills, the Roosevelts, the Trumans, or even the Reagans or Nixons to bring us out of this. Because in some ways I thought that was funny because at the end of the day, the question of spiritual degradation is the question of what did you do to your young generation? <laughs> and in some ways, all these, I find the crisis of the elite universities in America so interesting because you basically produced hollow American universities since the McCarthy era that of course you're not gonna produce even a Roosevelt or a Nixon or Reagan, whatever, even if they were produced by those universities, right? Because there was a deliberate, a deliberate like attempt by the ruling elite to not educate your people but at the end so and so here you have young people who now of course you're not going to have a roosevelt but also like this question of like why don't we have more educated or intelligent or whatever like 
whatever, but you know, all of educated, like ruling elite people. And, and here you have, but then what you do have just like always, because that this is in some ways is what Du Bois calls the law of history is you will always have new generations who at the end of the day, because children are such moral beings, because humans are such moral beings, you will have a young generation who look at the world around them and say, this is not right. And, you know, and so in some ways the ruling elite have F, like fucked themselves. And, um, and I just think, again, like I just wanted to say, like, I find something, I just think it's interesting that just like King and Baldwin predicted what's on the table in 2024 is not just the election, but it's the question of, I do think it's a question of the possibility of a new American, of American civilization, which matches a world global Afro-Asiatic reconstitution. Um, and yeah, and I think what you were saying about Trump, people cannot forget that whatever happens with the 2024 election and all of this BS around Trump not being on the ballot, like people, the, no one can forget that whatever happens from now until 2024, even if Trump is blocked completely from the ballot, which I don't think is possible, the American people will never forget what happened to Trump and what that means for them. And so no matter what, as time moves forward, time moves forward, all these people around the world, but Americans will see what happened to Trump and they will know what that means about the state and the country they live in. Um, so I just wanted to say that. And I agree, I agree that we need to go to the January 13th March. I was telling my dad about it. Emily, could you kindly share that article? That's a Britisher writing. So it's it's actually not. It's an American intellectual yeah. writing for a British. Oh, British. I also found that interesting because I think it also says something about, it says something that an American has to get it published in a British, like a British conservative that outlet. That is very interesting. Yeah, but yeah, I can share it in the, I'll share it in. But you know, um, it, intersects with the article uh, by um, uh, Richard Haas, you yeah. were mentioning, where he said that the greatest uh, threat to the American establishment, the American regime, as it were, is not China or Russia, but it's the internal contradictions of the United States. And the other, th other, uh, other article is the Washington Post article by Robert Kagan, where this long and winding road that he goes through to arrive at pretty much the same conclusions, um, that the contradictions of American, of American political life, which they focus upon you know, a lot, uh, these contradictions also have a moral spiritual grounding. Hence, the fragmenting and splitting of major denominations, you know, uh, as a way of talking about the fragmenting of the moral uh, consensus, as it were, 
that has served the American ruling class quite well for the last um, almost 80 years since the end of World War II. Uh, and the youth, uh, and I, I guess you guys could speak better on this than I can, but uh, these episodes of uh, rich donors calling upon the administrations of universities like the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, MIT, and we can go on, uh, calling upon the administration to punish students and deny them free speech. Students will never forget that. So when they ask young people to stand up for America's wars, young people won't do it. And they're not doing it, as you know. But this, I think that's a very, very important article. And I think the fact that you highlight it in relationship to the year of Baldwin, and the moral reckoning. Can, can I just say one other thing, Emily, uh, which your, your comments kind of uh, evoked in me. Um, you know, um, the free, you know, we have, we have always said that you cannot understand the crisis of the United States without understanding it, as you put it, as a civilizational crisis. This is a crisis of the civilization. And in a lot of ways, the civilization that has been captured uh, by the war makers and the rich, the billionaire class. And the people are saying that, well, you know, people say, well, who said that? No, 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 we are, we in our analysis are saying what the meaning of what the people do. What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of the fact that 70% of people say we will not fight for this country? That has never happened. What does it mean uh, when youth have abandoned Biden and the liberals and the identity politics Let's keep it real. The youth were going to be seduced into voting for Biden on the grounds of identity politics. That was the main thing, LGBTQ, the right to uh, abortion, those kind of questions. But what you say, what they're saying, and the way I interpret it, is that the question, this is a deeper crisis than a woman's right to choose or LGBTQ rights or Black Lives Matter. What they are objectively saying, and I think we have to focus upon this, is that the crisis is a crisis of the civilization, a crisis of meaning. What does it mean if LGBTQ people have rights, if gay marriage is protected, if a woman's right to choose under Roe v. Wade is protected? What, does all, what do all of these liberal uh, uh, policies mean if the civilization is committed to war and inequality 
and poverty. Young people are saying that. What does it mean if a woman has the right to choose and the women who had the State Department or the National Intelligence Agency or high government positions, if those women that have and guarantee my right to choose are also guaranteeing Israel's right to commit genocide against children and the unborn in Gaza. They're asking deeper questions. And that is why, uh, if, I don't want to talk too much, Emily. That is why young people, and it happened so quickly, abandoned Bernie Sanders. It's no young people call, hey, Bernie, come on out here and lead us. They're literally saying, Bernie, leave us alone. You're a liar. You know what I'm saying? You don't have any young people say, oh, um, Kamala Harris, she's a black woman or a so-called black woman. Uh, let her lead us. No, they've gone to the very opposite of what you said they should go. They went to Trump. And, that, and you know, the black question, I always say this, is deeper because in a lot of ways, black people, if you're not, you know, if you're not black, it, it, they're harder to understand. I'll put it that way. And the, it's very difficult because one, they don't, they, they don't feel that they can tell white people the truth. So if you call, oh, what is your opinion about that? They're going to hedge. But I, I think, so you get young people who are demonstrative as young people should be. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing because they wanted young people not to be demonstrative. Don't stand up, don't question, shut up. You're at a privileged university. You're gonna get a six-figure job as soon as you graduate. And young people say, no, that, that ain't what it's about. It's a deeper thing. And we're not gonna, we're not gonna sell out. And that's what is so encouraging. They won't be intimidated. They're not going to sell out. And so there is a future, an alternative future. And I agree with you, Emily. It's just, I, I talk too much, but it, it's so it's such a bright moment in a lot of ways for this country. Well, that's also why I think it's so important that we in the free school are going to work so hard to make sure James Baldwin is known for the right reasons, to read him the way he meant to be read. And we said this last week, but I thought about this a lot, but it was something you said, Doc, where people don't realize, like, first of all, I think writing, to actually write that sort of artistic expression, but also political expression, like it's it's a very distinct human endeavor. And to be able to do it the way James Baldwin did at that level is just not appreciated nowadays. Like, right, you know, no one really writes like for real. And, but it's something you said, Doc, where you were like, James Baldwin spent his whole life and he should have actually lived longer. He spent his whole life writing, 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 witnessing. And it was a very serious action to witness, to write. And 
he wrote about everything like you said he wrote to the american jews he wrote about israel he wrote about south africa he he wrote about america 25 different ways from 25 different perspectives for first person narrative third person narrative from the white perspective from the black perspective from the child from the adult <laughs> he was basically plays poetry novels short stories like essays and it was almost like james baldwin was like what the like how do you do you need me to write a new bible in order for you guys to get it like because if he didn't love america he would have just stopped writing when he was 18. <laughs> you know what i mean and it's almost it actually is a little it's funny but it's also kind of sad it actually is very sad that for someone who is so brilliant like this level of writing that there no one no one has been able to do like actual scholarship on james baldwin and it's almost like James Baldwin was like, I don't know how you need me to say it for you guys to understand it. And James Baldwin was doing a lot of the hard work, like the hard work of seeing like the Americans insides, the white Americans insides, the black Americans insides, the like immigrants insides, the human human beings insides more than the human being even did the work every day to look at themselves. And that's exhausting. That's so exhausting to do that. And yeah, I just think it's so important. So I think it's important that free school is doing that work of reading Baldwin the way he writes so plainly yet is so complicated to understand because of so many lies and assumptions that Americans have been so used to just feeding themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I'm excited for the year of Baldwin, but um yeah and then yeah just the other point i wanted to make is i didn't i forgot to say this but the other thing i think you said that was very significant was the way you carried on from last free school what the splits in the church and all these different churches really mean i think that's so significant yeah. this you described as the crisis of meaning like so not just right not just the elite universities but here you have these churches right yes. what does the church represent religions meaning like this should be the time when churches should be gathering people like they should see their congregation skyrocketing because people have never needed meaning in so long where and it's like you said you were like people will always find alternative churches because that's the way people are like and it it reminded me of yeah it reminds me of baldwin the way baldwin basically talked about he has all these characters who are inspired by his father's generation black people in the south who did not have churches like that even in harlem not real churches they're storefronts but people will always find alternative churches why because you're making you know it, there's something in there and so churches today have more than the more materially than they've ever had in the past right like and their congregations should be increasing but they're not they're splits and the congregations are decreasing and there's something very significant about that. And I also think your comparison, I think the comparison to the last time there was such a crisis in the churches was during in Germany in the 1930s and 40s because mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. of Hitler mm -hmm. and Nazism. I think that was so important. Mm -hmm. Like there's something very deep about that comparison of Hitler's Germany and like the corruption of those churches and the crisis and the ensuing internal crisis of those churches because of their lack of moral stance against Nazism compared to today, the way for 60 years in America, churches have failed the people 
-hmm. in a way they've never failed before in this country. And yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up because I think that's really important. May, may I, if, if no one else wants to say, if I could just, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, converse with you, because I think the points that you are making, I so agree with. Um, see, what the writer of the article that you're talking about, he calls it a spiritual crisis. Another way is a crisis of meaning. And usually uh, in a democratic society, meaning is uh, constructed in a dialectic between the elites and the masses. It's very interesting. Um, and then um, the elites construct a narrative out of that dialectic. And that's the role of the universities and, and intellectuals, most of whom are now in universities. Uh, that, and so at the end, what, we're, what we've been experiencing at least for the last 30 years is a narrative hegemony of university and elite university trained uh, intellectuals. Um, Baldwin did not have a college degree, never had a long-term appointment at a university. Uh, he had some temporary things uh, in black studies in their early days, but never, he was never a, an institutionalized or institutional intellectual. In that sense, he was a free thinker. He could think and critique without uh, fear of being fired or losing his job or whatever, and not getting a job. But this idea of a hegemonic narrative, a narrative that in effect, at least from the standpoint of the ruling elite, defines the American people and gives meaning to their lives, you know what I'm saying? You feel where I'm coming from? Now, I think the crisis of meaning or what you're calling the civilizational crisis or the spiritual crisis emerges with the assassination of King physically and the assassination of him as a prophetic and intellectual leader of the people. You know what I'm saying? So the Black Freedom Movement, and that's why you know we talk about it in free school so much, and it's just, it blows my mind that more people don't understand this. What the Black Freedom Movement was doing, and, and James Lawson told us it, was creating a new sense of meaning, a new people. What Baldwin said, the last white nation. Yeah. That's what the freedom movement was doing. But it was not determined in a negotiation between the people and the elite. It was the people 
themselves through their own dynamics, through their own processes, in their churches, in their unions, in their communities, redefining what it means to be an American, precisely what we have said the Third American Revolution was striving towards, and hence a Fourth American Revolution must seek to fulfill. That was the whole deal. But the ruling elite, recognizing that they had lost narrative hegemony or even the capacity to uh, uh, negotiate with the people, then attack knowledge itself and meaning itself. This is, and so after a few decades of this at universities and, and throwing all kind of resources and professors and journalists and other uh, crackheads, um, you know, talking and, and, and recrack, they came up with it. And this is what identity politics showed us. Whatever you think of LGBTQ, which is not new, by the way. I grew up with LGBT people. You know, they just didn't get operations. They couldn't afford it. And many didn't even want it, tell you the truth, let alone the drugs that go along with all that. But then they make this as a, um, how would you say, um, a way of judging a person's humanity or progressiveness or whatever. If you did not accept the ruling elite's position on transgenderism, LGBTQ, quote, Black Lives Matter, which is not Black freedom, by the way, uh, if you didn't accept, then you were consigned to the margins of intellectual life. They establish temporary narrative hegemony. That's what you guys experienced when you went to university. You go there happy and bright and hopeful and you leave bitter and angry. You hate most of the professors. There is no mentorship. Most people was damn were driven almost crazy, you know, messing around with these idiots. A university, and let's be real, I know a temple in, in Af, what they call Afrocology department, they have more courses on hip hop than on Baldwin. I doubt that they even have a course on Baldwin or Du Bois or King, you know? Well, but they don't operate in a vacuum. The university permits it because the whole project was to dummy the American people down. As far as pop culture, pop culture, I don't care whether it's Taylor Taylor Swift, yeah, or or Jay Z. It's all the same at the end. Diversionary, dummying down, uh, no music worth its uh, weight in, in salt. Nothing. You live. You leave youth. In in effect, lost and turned out. Where do we turn? And suddenly. And where did this come from? 
They found a cause. It is peace. It is peace. And frankly, since the beginning of the Cold War, every young generation has had to find a path to the struggle for peace in order to establish itself and its meaning and purpose as a generation. Y'all have done it. Y'all have done it. And I don't give a damn what nobody say, mother, father, sister, brother, who preacher, professor, whoever said, don't back off of this because they will fall to the side. I know that in my own experience, and now it is even more consequential. Don't compromise on principle. You know what I'm saying? You have, let me just, I'll, I'll end here. People will say, hey, look, you got, uh, I'll talk about my friend Alice, Alice Lee. Alice, you have a degree in information science. Oh, you could go wherever you want. You so, you know, oh, you could make a six figure. That's all you got to do. Just play your cards right. You know, Michelle, why are you messing around with free jazz and all of that? You know, hey, just play your cards right. The thing is, and I, I can tell you, if you do that, especially at this most pivotal period in your life, you will lose it all and your life will be hell. You might have things, but you won't have a soul. What you all are doing guarantees not only a good life, but a long life. The way you all are, stand up. Stand up, stand for something, fight for something, identify with the right heroic figures, Baldwin, who else? You know, a lot of people say, well, you need to read James Joyce. Why? For what? You know, or uh, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, you know, talking about the, the elite being drunk and shit. Why? You know, like, and I'm, I'm not against Dostoevsky or, or Tolstoy, and it's a beautiful thing. But right now, Baldwin, because it fortifies you morally and spiritually. It, because the heart has to be educated, not just the head. The heart. The education of the heart reshapes the head. The heart is the software for the brain. Uh, let me shut up. I, I talk too much. Forgive me, y'all. <laughs> no, it's okay. You don't have to apologize. Well, actually, hearing you talk also made me think about, like, what you just said about the education of the heart is soft. Like, the heart is software for the brain, but... Okay, going back to the church too. Well, because reading Sonny's Blues was really impacted me because I realized I realized when Baldwin was talking about Sonny, who is the like the narrator's little brother, 
and who wants to play jazz and the narrator is like what at first when Sonny's like I want to be a musician and the narrator is like what the fuck like <laughs> how are you going to make a living like are you trying to play classical piano you know like Bernstein style which by the way that was a terrible movie I forgot to tell you Maestro's like a really bad movie I'll tell you later why um but Sonny says no I'm trying to play jazz and um the narrator says oh so like duke um lewis armstrong sort of stuff and sunny says no i'm trying to play charlie parker sort of stuff and dosiba i realized when there's a beautiful the ending of the short story is so beautiful because it reminded me a lot of our conversations in free school about not just jazz but rhythm and blues and there's something about music like when we're talking about the splits in the church and the moral corruption of churches today for money and the material when that goes against so much of everything Baldwin talks about when he even talks about his father's generation of the church um and spirituality but also specifically like the black prophetic tradition um in some ways what Baldwin is saying when Baldwin was describing the scene of Sonny playing jazz and the way it's an expression of something deep within that the narrator forgot he already had because he comes from a people, a special people. In some ways, it was like reminding me how, in some ways, the one thing in Philly at least that we have and that like has been able to be retained from the church is the music, is jazz. Like, you know what I mean? Like, isn't it interesting that in some ways, like people have described who was it? Was it Derek or Ransom? I forget. Someone described going to these free jazz concerts, these jazz concerts organized by Leo as going to church. Or the way we talked about how going to Patti LaBelle's concert felt like going to church. And it's because in some ways I was like, maybe there's something in the music. It's like the spirit, the spirit of the church that brought people to church in the first place. Like the morality, healing, love, like let's come together. You know, there's something in it that's still kept in the music. Um, and I guess, I guess I just wanted to say that. And it's also me trying to put out feelers for when I can read the passage from Sunny's Blues that I really want to read, but maybe I'll do it later. <laughs> no, yeah, I was I was waiting for you to mention about Sunny's Blues because you texted me about it yesterday, and I think it is important for you to mention, and I'm glad that you read it. And I think it, takes me back to when I was first starting to read a lot of Baldwin and I was reading him all through like and it wasn't and it was about this exact thing um I'm emotional today because I'm also being like uh reminded by and I was emotional on Monday when our book club was finishing up the chapter for uh uh another country and what i'm trying to say is when i first was reading Baldwin number one you face you only have yourself when you read Baldwin. you only so you use and know your life better with Baldwin. um and i just feel like Fiction is not supposed to escape or allow an escape route 
from your life or from the world. And, you know, so the whole thing about the uh, metaphor or an allegory is supposed to help explain and help better understand mm -hmm. your way forward, mm -hmm. like you. Mm -hmm. um, and when I, and like when you are reading Baldwin, it takes me when I'm first almost being allowed to think about my own emotional mm -hmm. well-being mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. where, you know, it's like mm -hmm. very real. Baldwin is a very real, and you can't help but also then being that yourself or having to go through life with that criteria. Um, but when we have finished up the first chapter in another country, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rufus, which mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. in this case, mm -hmm. the center point of the story, but I avoid protagonists because okay. I wanted to mm -hmm. explain that the story is beyond just Rufus mm -hmm. at the end. You know, it like develops mm -hmm. through his family, his mm -hmm. friends. Mm -hmm. They also are, their choice in the story is to become the protagonist. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they're all dictated by that moral choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so at the end of the first chapter, Rufus um, is, finding himself alone. He had a relationship with a white woman who was older than him. He himself, maybe in his early 20s. He himself, a drummer. Um, and his relationship with this white woman who was from the South, yeah. Leona, was about 30 or so, had mm -hmm. a marriage, couldn't complete this marriage. Mm -hmm. She couldn't have children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rufus ends up having a like this volatile relationship with Leona and he does beat her. And so going through those meetings uh, and reading those sections were difficult to talk about because the first assumption is if you love somebody, well, why would you treat them bad? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that whole dynamic is like the whole thing about love needs to is defined yeah. and so mm -hmm. he's very uh put in an existential crisis because mm -hmm. what happens to leona maybe mm -hmm. if you can say an after of the relationship is that she ends up in bellevue for a couple of days mm -hmm. her parent her cousins or brother it was i think it was a brother took her home down south. And when Rufus tried to meet her in Bellevue, even though he wasn't a family member and he is black, mm -hmm. was told by this brother, like, if this happened in the South, watch, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. what would have actually happened to you, Rufus? Mm -hmm. So Rufus is sent spiraling. And even if he has his friends, um, he the last scene is that he leaves one of the bars that he used to go to that have a lot of interracial mixing. Um, and he's walking onto the train or walking to the train, mm -hmm. getting on the train, 
and then he commits suicide and he goes i guess all the way uptown mm-hmm. into the river and he says you know because what baldwin is in this case explaining is a part of a type of personality the type of person he was like well if you know i can't deal with this here then i need to take it up to god and i'm like and he was like i was i'm gonna you know what i mean if you're gonna punch me here the well, then i'm gonna come right to your front door start knocking on it and be like you know why me that's or that's in part the explanation mm-hmm. that Baldwin mm-hmm. was giving to Rufus narrative yeah. of his suicide. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. like, I'm sorry, Ida, on his way down. Ida is his sister, you know? Because in the beginning, like first pages or two, he was like, I know I shouldn't be on the streets like peddling ass because I should be making my people his sister mm-hmm. proud. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to say specifically mm-hmm. is when I'm reading this book, which is not for the first time, mm-hmm. I'm also having the same mm-hmm. thing that I'm having right today, meeting with everybody at a free school, mm-hmm. which is this like this like riveting reaction, not because it's surprising, mm-hmm. but because it's so definite, real. Mm-hmm. It, it is what is a part of my life. I relate to Rufus. Like I know where he's, I know where he has been. I know what, like I know who he could be. Who, I know why, either whether that be with my brother or it's just any, so when it comes to reading it, you find the surprise coming out of the fact that you find yourself in these so-called fictional mm-hmm, characters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more than you would want to expect <laughs> um, or want to even admit yeah, to a certain crazy. point, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know? Um, but that's the thing about the novels. But I think I'm just emotional today too because I'm thinking about that phrase like, I'm I'm forgetting it completely, but it's about beginnings, like beginning anew. And that's what me and Emily were texting when she had, was reflecting about Sunny's Blues and how the end of Sunny's Blues was also an ending that I really remember. Like I remember the whole scene, like the brother is, sit, is sitting, not sitting, but like seeing his little brother play, like really play in this place. Um, in this in this bar or whatever and what that means for the brother like what that means for the narrator mm-hmm. of the story a mm-hmm. new beginning mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know how do you mm-hmm. put a beginning at the end of the book mm-hmm. so when it comes to mm-hmm. when we're at least when i'm sitting here that's also the like part of the core that we're 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 talking about whether that be a beginning of a new democracy, mm-hmm, a beginning mm-hmm, of a civilization, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a beginning mm-hmm, of a new mm-hmm. people. Um, this is interesting. I can only imagine mm-hmm. the people who will be there on January 13th. And I can only imagine the situations that I could encounter with those people. 
which happened in part with, with you know, the one time when we went to the protest on the parkway. And when the men began to pray, mm -hmm. I was next to a Muslim or an Arab woman. Mm -hmm. She and I both got emotional. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I was like feeling very shy. I was like, I don't want to hug her, but I mm -hmm. want to hug her mm -hmm. because she's my sister and I know what we're going through together. But I also know that that is a possibility, you know, going forward. At least everything is redefined and that means everything is on the table, which is also the point of life. Anyway, isn't that what it's all about? To use your pain, to use what you have learned and be able to teach, be able to bring, you know, open up the minds of people. like. Everything is on the table. That's why that's why I always go back to for me, which is just, you know, kind of like secondary and not that important <clears throat> about why free school is even the way that it is. Mm -hmm. What is the Saturday free school for philosophy and black liberation? That I have to keep explaining. It's just about and for what purpose does it serve? And I know that when I come to it, I come, or at least when I had come to it, when mm -hmm. I first came to it, mm -hmm. I was excited by the fact that I was a part of something mm -hmm. much bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now I know that the price, the price of that whole choice mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. worth it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. In the midst of, like you had said, who can imagine this kind of genocide? If mm -hmm. Du Bois were alive today, mm -hmm. what would he say? What would he say? Could he, and like a part of me like doesn't want to believe, like a part of me sees everything and I'm like, is this real? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there's a man in a palace, in, you know, this whole thing is so, it mirrors mm -hmm. everything that America has to go through. Mm -hmm. Who, what is Gaza? Like, who is the Palestinian? Mm -hmm. Like, Palestine mm -hmm. means you are a citizen of that area mm -hmm. that is like, mm -hmm. so like that whole thing needs mm -hmm. to be figured out with them. Mm -hmm. they, they figure out their, their self-realization is a part of their, their their journey to freedom mm -hmm. because there's mm -hmm. a woman named Basan. she was like if i survive the genocide meaning like if i survive and she goes by her, her she's a storyteller she tells stories of gaza the the fruits the fabrics the things that make up the civilization of their people she says what where what do we need to figure out and I think that's part and parcel of what the American people need to figure out, mm -hmm. which is what is, what is either true, what do we stand by, all of it. What is mm -hmm. our art, what, how, how is everything important? But anyway, when I see this man, his name is Khalid, but he goes by uncle by everybody. He was a man whose grandchildren died um, and got killed in the bombing. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting about a bomb is that mm -hmm. it affects mm -hmm. in a radius because after it's dropped, 
whether that be from 2000 mm -hmm. or the illegal like 2500, mm -hmm. which has been dropped. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a radius where yeah. it yeah. can mm -hmm. injure and yeah. harm people. Yeah. Meaning there's a lot of images of babies that look very much like their sleep, very much like they haven't been you know, yeah, physically yeah. harmed. Right. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, mm -hmm. something, it hit the mental. It affected the, the heart and it stopped. You know what I'm saying? So his children, they weren't very much scarred. But what he did was pre in preparing them for their, um, you know, their body bags um, was to put the pigtails on his daughter, on his granddaughter, like he would do every day. Like he would do preparing her to leave the house. Go to school. And go to school. Mm -hmm. And after that situation, he's become a, a symbol. Like many people have become a symbol of these people that represent complete resistance and complete renewal. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. He has become a, kind of saint amongst his people like helping the journey begin with mothers whose children have been killed by imperialism period he said you, you know he ref, he refers back to the teachings of the whole of, of his book of their book of allah and how they think about death mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. a part of the cycle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which they are glad to mm -hmm. be able to achieve. Mm -hmm. Because in this case, mm -hmm. they achieve it for, for the future. Mm -hmm. yeah, of, yeah. No, what I mean mm -hmm. also is like the future mm -hmm. of humanity, right. which is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I, I'm mm -hmm. only saying that mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of the specific mm -hmm. humanity, it, it continues even in death. And so right, then that's right, that's right. on top of that, mm -hmm. when he's mm -hmm. talking amongst mm -hmm. his people and stuff, he's also then becoming a person to speak to the rest of the world. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that he shares his example. He's not afraid to speak. Like I that is a, is that is that that man um is a person who was an ordinary man amongst his people. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but saw mm -hmm. his responsibility without wavering mm -hmm. and spoke and will continue to speak when, when he is called and when he needs to. And that's also what will happen. And I can imagine that's also what will happen here in America mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what has been happening across the board. Mm -hmm. Because of what you're saying, mm -hmm. this, this, is the break like you can't go further than what's been going on you know what i'm saying like you can't go further than a, than the continuing bombing you can't say yeah. oh it was right for them to bomb mm -hmm. kids it was right for them mm -hmm. to right at this hour continue to click them buttons and just let them drop mm -hmm. and clear areas where mm -hmm. jews israelis want to come in and make well, their own houses that's right, that's right. You can't mm -hmm. look at it and say mm -hmm. it's something else than mm -hmm. what it isn't. That's right. You know? That's right. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, mm -hmm. it does come to what you do, what you choose. That's and right. it becomes very important. That's right. Because Megna has sent me a poem. I think, I forgot if it was Nazra, 
Israel or whatever, mm-hmm. who it was. Mm-hmm. But it was talking about how you live life and uh, with purpose. And that's something that I guess in general, everybody in the free school have kind of been going back and forth and just in our conversations, this is what we talk about. Mm-hmm. How do you live without purpose? That's right. How do you live? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you stay awake? <laughs> like, what is your- you can't. You exactly. Can't. And that's also why I'm emotional yeah, because exactly. everything does matter at the end of the day. Everything right. does have significance in the history of your life. Mm-hmm. Like when it was written, <laughs> you're laid down to rest. Like what King was saying, Yeah. like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What matters more is what you do. What matters more is what you say, what you stand by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is very clear and obvious. And I, I personally, I personally mm-hmm. care not about the price. Oh, people will put me down. Mm-hmm. Like after this, like, mm-hmm. please, like it's, yeah, we're right. at a point right. where we have to be mature about our choices. Mm-hmm. And we have to be specific mm-hmm. about what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. In our and, and that has across the board. We're not playing with identity politics anymore. <laughs> like you're saying, like we're not playing with it. We, if we want to talk about theory, let's go to Baldwin. That's right. What else we got to go to? <laughs> like let's really think about that. You know what I'm? Yeah. Should I hear you? But but I don't mean to just sit here and be like talk, no, no, no. like quiet. But I I feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I like our like we're here and it's so funny that we're all here, whether that be like in this house or what I'm talking about specifically about free school because right. it's so funny to me. In the midst of everything, I found I was able I was blood I don't know what it is. <laughs> Somebody put me here and I'm going to continue to stay on it because that's really what we have. And you're so right, Doc. Like that made me so emotional when you said that our generation has found peace as its calling, as its mission. Like it's so funny. That's like right. I'm an artist, and I'm not an artist by choice. I'm just an artist. Yeah. And like that is the only thing that I can't. Like that's the only thing I can be about. Is about. It's not just about purpose. Like you know what I'm saying. Like what is what I'm trying to say with everything what is it that my people are trying to say and that is that we stand for peace we will fight for peace and we'll hold it like we'll we'll take responsibility of it because we haven't been taking responsibility of really anything else but when it's of our choosing i can totally see a different people i can i can see it But Emily, you could you, you could read the section. Well, that's my personal opinion. <laughs> I, I'd like to uh, contribute before we go in real deep on some uh, ball. And I know I know that's going to be uh, deep. Uh, I am uh, able to kind of make sense of the crisis of the churches that we've been discussing from something I experienced relatively recently. Uh, I was, I guess, uh, this is my plan, but I, you know, I went to service and I was, uh, I guess, a witness to a uh, exorcism, <laughs> an exorcism, and uh, kind of, you know, with, with what you've, uh, what you explained, it helps me tangibly make sense of the crisis of the churches right now, where you know you have people that they have needs that uh, they might have some grave needs, 
uh, uh, you know, some serious afflictions in life, or just you want you need a place to go to to have some peace and kind of help you make sense of what's going on in your life and guide overall guided so you can have a good life, a positive life, and, and be a, a a person that does something good with uh, for themselves and for others. And what I saw with this exorcism, I'm sure this guy was in was in some problems and they're literally unable to deal with them at any, in any substantive way because at this period to deal with yourself as an individual, you have to deal with the society that you live in uh, and the kind of conditions in your life that are uh, making you experience these problems, uh, which are part of the you know, greater society. They're not your individual problems. And so you had, they had to externalize it to some spirit that was uh, uh, afflicting him that they need to expel. And uh, um, the, yeah, it's just a, a, a failure of the, of the church to be able to, to, to do, provide, provide this orientation for people, which now when, when, uh, when you have something that you have need explaining your life, like the situation of the Palestinian people, there, we, we have talked about it at length because there's a lot to talk to. There's a lot going on, but uh, at a very baseline, the most simple explanation is this, this is something wrong that's happening, that's going on. And in, in these other society-wide problems, you know, it's difficult to understand because society is complex. But when something very plain and simple, like the, the suffering of the Palestinian people is happening, and they're unwilling to provide even just a moral statement of of it being wrong much much less an explanation and, and a and a way for people to contribute to to doing something right then people are like all right so this i i, I clearly i've been lied to uh and you know i saw i, I saw that in the the exorcism i guess because the people were explained they like debriefed it because i guess it was weird to them too and they're like you know i've been experiencing a lot of doubt in my faith recently uh and because i've been suffering uh, but this, you know, helped me see the power of God. And so, you know, people have been carrying these uh, uh, doubts and they need to do these strange things to convince themselves of uh, uh, the, I guess, rightness of the church or in some way probably reaffirm their faith because it's, it's probably been wavering because the faith has been mitigated by what the church has told you uh, what God is. And... Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, whether you read uh, somebody like James Baldwin, who embodies the the spirit of the the church, uh, ele elevated to political struggle in a very personal way, not in a very abstract theoretical way, but a, a personal way. Uh, I, I, I think uh, I think a, a Baldwin reading group can be that kind of uh, spiritual place that can deal with these personal uh, problems that are part of uh, the betterment of society. And uh, when, I, when I think as well of uh, the, uh, the, 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 youth, the children and the youth, uh, I guess at universities and education broadly, I, I remember being uh, uh, young in school and everything up to that point in life told you that if you go to university, you're gonna be prepared to be a positive uh, contributor to society, you're gonna you're gonna have a, a interesting job that will help serve people, 
And uh, uh, overall, you'll get a way of looking at the world that will enable you to do good as well on your own. And once again, you're young, you don't know how the world works. So you give them your faith. And I mean, they, okay, they, they offer some interesting technical training. You could do something positive with that given the right circumstances. But then they direct it, misdirect it when you see this very obvious moral crisis of your, of your country. And so I, I, you know, I, myself, after uh, being so disappointed at school that all of my uh, training was not going to actually be of any service to anyone other than uh, either enriching my employer and possibly myself, uh, really, I guess I found uh, that the ideas of the free school, and I, I learned more in uh, in here than I did in college, and uh, I, that's my that's my uh, hope as well for the uh, year of Baldwin, for all, all, all these people that are, their minds are hungry in addition to their bodies. Like they, you know, you, the, the university experience kind of like, uh, try to still like stimulate your senses as much as possible, keep you going with like dropping these dopamine hits, you know, the next party next weekend, or this concept of the foodie, oh, you know, you eat fine food, wow, you know, you need that dopamine boost because, you're just so empty otherwise, and you have nothing else to make you smile. Uh, so uh, that, that uh, and then when something like uh, the struggle of the Palestinian people comes to your awareness as a young student, you're like, wow, you know, I care about this. It, it, it wakes you up, it slaps you out of it. It probably it might even sober you up a little bit, unfortunately, <laughs> like literally, like from all the drugs and the alcohol. So I, I, uh, uh, I, I hope to be of uh, service uh, in the year of Baldwin in this way as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just my uh, reflections over what y'all shared. Also, I did want to say that other bit that you said, Doc, about the new year, because that's also what I'm saying. Like, there is a responsibility to it. There's a responsibility to every day. Um, uh, and I just am always appreciating that you, that we do that. We remind um, of that responsibility. And yeah, it's just that idea of a new year. A new year. Uh, you know what I'm saying? That's like, so interesting. The new year, a new beginning, a new possibility, a new possible. Yeah, yeah. Because also uh -huh, in light uh -huh, of like uh -huh, how yeah. we reflected about how many events that we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. not to say like, you know, look at us, but mm -hmm. it's to mm -hmm. say something mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. what preschool, which is mm -hmm. what I'm a mm -hmm. huge advocate and I'll just continue to keep saying it mm -hmm. to help explain what preschool is. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just, it's to say, what is it that we will continue to do right. and how right. we will. Right, um, right, this is interesting. Do it because mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a sense, even with the Henry Winston event, which right. I guess was our most recent one, yeah, yeah. what was interesting about it is that, or what it showed me is that we will kind of bounce off in a sense whomever does come, you know what I'm saying? Yes, and that will, that, that, will, will that, that will show what 
free school is capable of doing. Meaning when people come to events, that also changes the quality of the events themselves. And yes, yes. that okay. makes the event um, mm -hmm. not as what, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. unplanned portions of the events are almost the most important. That's true. Portion. I agree with that. I and then that. what we learn from those unplanned portions is also how we will continue to either make or organize the day or the event itself and how we're thinking about it. Because what showed me was that there is an interest not only in Henry, in Henry Winston, number one. There's an interest in Henry Winston, right, number right, one. Right, right, right. Um, and number two, the philosophical framing um, of Henry Winston and, you know, describing what you are saying that people should know more of the black freedom movement and what it consisted of that is also a possibility to get into to the events and things that we will probably be doing in the coming year and there's a lot to uncover still and you know more to flesh out that we already already that we already know and so that I'm thinking on, on that level. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Um, I think it's important to become specific. Like when we're saying the Black Freedom Movement, and you know, we have to explain how it emerges. And either like when we're revisiting different concepts, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think they'll all be in tandem in a sense, also mm -hmm, with, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, history as it's this been unfolding sense. It makes sense too, mm -hmm. especially when mm -hmm. we're talking about the mm -hmm. election. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So one, I think that is, it is right to celebrate James Baldwin for a whole year. Um, but I also think that it presents a lot of possibilities for what or how to celebrate, number one. And then how to celebrate James Baldwin? How to celebrate mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. in the year? It's a it's because celebration mm -hmm. also means a learning, relearning, <laughs> um, better understanding, um, and because even with the concept like love, go ahead. Um, because I think throughout the year, like we'll be showing different films, like we'll have art, music um alongside everything like there'll be very a lot of examples of love playing itself out mm -hmm. whether through strangers um talking amongst each other about ideas or um as we describe like because i think there'll probably be like two things that will hit like the healing that people will have to face with the death of king like I think that would be a big thing that will probably hit in a in different ways. Like, but then the other thing is, like this thing about science, or what I that's what I want to say. Like I think that that'll be, or that will be things that we'll probably talk about mm -hmm. or try and like yeah. Yeah. configure yeah. because yeah. what the, yeah. because I think yeah. what was interesting about portions of like how the civil rights movement operated mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is also what we're referring to by the storefront churches, mm -hmm. the movements of the people. Well, how 
is it that people had moved? The example of it is important because our generation also needs to have a certain level of confidence being brought back into our, right. you know, ignited back into us to say mm -hmm. like we can, we are amongst people who can also do it. And this is amongst a time where, you know, the the same kind of battleground working people that built the civil rights movement are now the like they're either downtrodden with drugs, the mm -hmm. lack of the mm -hmm. war, like mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing of tran the transition period that we'll probably have to go through, mm -hmm. which we've learned about, whether that be with the history of China or the history, like, uh, like what's interesting to, so there's a lot of things that I think about in that the question of transition. But what I'm saying is that to have a confidence is to is the reason why we learn from the examples mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. organizational absolutely, process absolutely. of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. which was a moral connection because what we're saying with king is that he presented or like what we're saying about the church is that this church was a living church it was living because people were taking responsibility of it there was a god that was alive amongst people you know like there's that moral fiber that was tight and wound people together in this whole thread of wanting to better their county their city their you know what i'm saying like they're real communities like door to door and so that example is important the people are important the quality of the important is also the quality of the people is also something that we will have will we will be explaining and have been explaining and that's the reason that's why i'm saying like this whole thing of love and science in love light science. in light of like uh -huh. what we're saying uh -huh. will be uh -huh. how we uh -huh. talk about king uh -huh. through baldwin um is important and the last thing of what I mean, or what I'm trying to explain by this quality of the people is why we go back to the music, which is what you're saying, Emily, too, and why I agree with that so much, is because that quality is the last kicker to kind of help boost confidence. Because people should not be ashamed to be able to love. Like, people shouldn't be ashamed to have emotions and feelings and feel hurt. And, you know, we were just before free school listening to Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And what was so interesting when I was sitting here listening to Marvin is that, you know, his voice still affects me, even if I didn't, I wasn't raised in that time. Like I don't, you know, I can't relate to him being of my time, but he is still speaking to me. He is still important. And I think that what's interesting is that America hasn't never forgotten the contribution, I think, of what you're saying of R&B music, because that's like an uncovered rock that when you're young, like this is a feeling when you're young and you're first learning something for the first time and you're like, wow, like I didn't know this was here. That's also that feeling that Americans will be feeling or long to feel, you know, when they are, when at least this is for me, when I'm listening to that music, I'm like, oh, I could sing like, you know, it doesn't have to be all 
the over the top or overproduced or over mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. uh made mm -hmm. like materialistic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it has to be honest so like those kind of things are important because i think that with amongst all or amongst this moment the lack of confidence is is something that people reside in and have been used to being fed by the ruling elite but in this case we're saying the opposite we're saying that our music reimagine it think of it as a part of you still because it is and then use it to make to make to like live and you know that kind of thing so i think that there will probably be a lot of ways in the year of and that we can make more right. specific right. Um, right. what we know of Martin Luther King, um, to say the least, and how that would also lend to a certain level of answering the question of where we are to go. What are we to do now having this information and responsibility? But we'll get to that part probably as the whole year kind of right. goes along. Yeah. You, uh, go ahead. Bro. Thanks, man. Um, before mm -hmm. Emily reads, you know, the passage, I wanted to get involved and, um, you know, address like, you know, some of the criticisms of the Saturday Free School, which is that, you know, the Saturday Free School doesn't do, you know, quote unquote, the work you know the saturday preschool doesn't host protests we're not part of a protest movement <clears throat> you know even though we'll be going to dc um or the saturday preschool you know we just sit around and we read um you know baldwin or we read du bois and that's not really doing you know work and i, I think it comes from you know a misunderstanding of you know what what we're trying to accomplish here samir may i just be a little more direct it's a it's an attempt to trivialize us it's not a misunderstanding and 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 all that a lot of people say are people that never been to the free school but yeah and and i you know i i'm, I'm not but i resent this trivialization I mean, for my own personal thing, that's all I've been a part of is a protest movement all my life. So, I mean, but yeah, but you go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, me, me too. I, I agree. You know, I don't, I don't uh, consider myself, uh, you know, born to protest movements. And, you know, I, I'm from, you know, the left, uh, quote unquote. Um, but I think, you know, another criticism is, oh, the Saturday free school, we're overwhelmingly Asian. And so, you know, why should, why should we be reading Du Bois or studying James Baldwin? And, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, Henry Winston talks about this, it's neo-pan-Africanism. It's, uh, it's an insidious racism to say that, you know, Du Bois is not, you know, something that we should be focused on because he's a black scholar. And, you know, we should be reading, um, you know, Asia, Asian leftist, or we should be studying, you know, China or India or something like that. But, um, you know, it's only, you know, Du Bois 
you know, we, we're talking about, you know, the life world and like the li lived experience, not just religion in the book or the institutions, but like religion and how that interacts. You know, Nietzsche says, you know, God is dead, man killed God. Um, meaning that, you know, it's, it's human beings, you know, religion is only a real thing when it's interpreted and, you know, modified by human beings. But, you know, to, to you know, to conclude, I want to relate this to the Palestinians, because, you know, if you read Sun Tzu or you study war at all, you know, the major thing on the battlefield is not uh, numbers, but it's the spirit and the morale of your troops. And, you know, that decides the battle. And, you know, that's what the Saturday Free School is doing, you know, for young people, uh, you know, is raising their spirit and telling you, you know, actually, this is political education. You can change the world. You are part of the world. There is a sky. Um, you know, there is a freedom fighting music that you can listen to, not the garbage that you're currently listening to. And, you know, also you should be able to identify it as garbage because you're a human being and you're part of a civilization. All of us, even the white people, you know, um, you know, when you talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, I looked him up and you're right, you know, he was influenced by the anti-racist movement. It all goes, it all goes back, you know, to Du Bois, you know, Du Boisian's view of the struggle, which is, you know, that philosophy is war, you know, ideas are part of war. And, you know, that's why the Palestinians are undefeated and everybody knows it. You know, name a single in world history, name a single conventional army as defeated in asymmetrical warfare. Uh, you know, a military using asymmetrical warfare. I, I get that from you, Doc. But, you know, um, yeah, and, you know, they all know it because uh, everybody, you know, it's uh, standard, you know, viewing at West Point to see the Battle of Algiers. That's art. That's not a documentary. That's not history. Um, but, yeah, so I think that's, uh, you know, that's what we're studying. It, it all goes back to Du Bois and, you know, Du Bois' scientific analysis you know, without that, you can't understand King. You can't understand, you know, where Baldwin is is coming from. And I also, sorry, Eddie, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on your point about like, you know, the political quietism. Like, oh, you can have a Baldwin without politics. And you know what you said about like, oh, just have a, you know, have a good job. And you know, this is a, a crisis. You know, this is what I've been talking to Jihad about. You know. Political quietism is a big thing in Sunni Islam because, uh, you know, the Prophet's grandsons were killed by Sunni Muslim leaders. And the Sunni position is that, uh, you know, the grandson should not have risen against, you know, the illegitimate ruler. And so political quietism has been a problem in Sunni Islam. And, you know, that's why some people say Shia Islam is the more revolutionary of the two. Um, but it, I was reading about the the mosque, uh, Masjid Al Jamia, that got uh, uh, vandalized, and I was reading about the history and how it was set up in the '80s by Penn MSA students, and it reminded me of reading about the history of Temple and the stadium and the agreement with the Black Student Union that they would never build anything on the other side of Broad, which was broken by Mayor John Street who built the uh, the basketball uh, Leacora Center. Um, and, you know, over time, uh, you know, both at Temple and Penn, 
there's become a political quietism, you know, that Eddie was talking about by students to not get involved in politics. And, you know, these, these were like, you know, uh, Muslim students who were going to the mosque, you know, they founded the mosque, they raised the money, they were giving SAT tutoring, and uh, they were giving, you know, Friday sermons. And, you know, over time, immigrants, you know, this was in the 80s, and over time to now, immigrants have become politically quiet. And we don't, um, you know, we're told, just make your money and be quiet. And um, I think it, it, it begs the question, uh, you know, I, I use you as an example, Doc, because you resisted the draft. And I think that you turned out a lot better than men who did, didn't resist the draft. And, you know, so I think in the end of the day, what you were saying is being part of the struggle is actually good for your soul in the long term. Sorry, Eddie. Nah, bro. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I was uh, uh, stimulated again by some of the things that uh, Serafina and Yuga said about this. Uh, uh, I would say the love and science and uh, this, uh, which can kind of weave a fabric uh, of unity together and give people confidence. Because I was also reflecting on my experiences in uh, in church and. Uh, no, but it, it's, it's interesting because I guess, you know, churches, I think a lot of times people just go to churches because it's somewhere where people will kind of treat you kind of nice or at least better than better than what you might get at, at someone on the street because there's all this distrust and, uh, uh, I guess, uh, a danger outside, man, it's dangerous. And uh, what what this, this feeling that I experienced at church, uh, which is, you know, a crisis of American societies, I still felt that people had this, uh, kind of uh, uh, a garden is they didn't they, they, they weren't sure how to relate to uh, other people that they didn't know as well uh, which is uh, you know I guess people are supposed to be nice at church because you know you have the feeling of oh I have experienced the love of God and I want to uh, share that with other people uh, but this despite of that I think there I, I still felt this um, guardedness and 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 uh, uh, once again, I think it's because people are not able to deal with society. They're not able, and so they're not sure how to relate to other people in in society. Uh, is reaches that point, uh, and so that that's where these uh, barriers come in. And uh, uh, what uh, what I you know I what, what what I feel in the free school, or and I've been going to mosque recently is, you know, even if people even if someone doesn't necessarily understand everything uh, that you're saying. What, we uh, we uh, we've developed uh, uh, knowledge and a framework of viewing the world, and we're making a, a vision for the future that you can have this uh, uh, confidence and uh, give this uh, f uh, feeling that we are going to make new human beings, and we're going to make a new country uh, and a new world, and uh, the. Uh, the the ideas I, I think you know they're, they're, can can be shared, but uh, this new way of relating to one another uh, that that's a lot of hope that I have in the year of Baldwin because uh, through struggle uh, we'll have this sense of unity and common purpose, and uh, and and people will people will want to be a part of it even if they don't understand it because they'll they'll know with their hearts first before the minds that we are seeking to do good. So uh, 
yeah, with, with, with love and science, because you have to know how to apply the love, uh, then, then I, I, I feel this, it's, uh, it's possible. Emily, do we have any uh, comments? Yeah, we have some comments. No, I was just thinking about the heart mind thing. Um, no, I was just remembering something I think I said when I was a kid. But anyway, so um, uh, we have a lot of good mornings from Shantanu says, Good morning, everyone. See you all next week. Yes, the great return. <laughs> People from free school to Philadelphia. <laughs> um, so Shantanu is coming back. So is Perba. Um, this um, person named Magda Omer says, good morning, blessed morning in reverence to be here with you all and gratitudes to liberatory spaces like this. Um, and then they also said, and Palestinian Jews. And I think that was, um, that was a, uh, that was in reference to, I think, when Doc, you were talking about um, that when um, European Jews came to found Israel, that there were already Palestinians there, I think. And they were just specifying that there were Palestinian Jews there as well. Um, Jake says, good morning, everyone. Todd says, good morning, free school. Um, and then Perba says, good morning, free school. Miss you all. Looking forward to today's conversation. BK says, good morning. Yvonne says, good morning. Um, uh, Gannon Sloves says, can you prescribe some works? I like the word prescribe. Can you prescribe some works of James Baldwin? I'm new here and haven't yet engaged much with this work. That's a good question. We'll, um, we're putting together a reading list um, that will go on our website, which will launch in the new year um, in preparation for the year Baldwin. So we'll be able to get you that list um, in the upcoming weeks. And then... And then, of course, like just if you like, if you want to get started now, I think for his essays, the collected, his collected essays by the Library of America is very good. Like that's a really good book with a lot of his essays, like um, his nonfiction work. But I think there's some fiction in there too. Or no, it's mainly his essays. But that's the best place for his essays. And then um, in terms of novels or fiction, he has many, but we're actually in free school going to read another country starting next week, right? Okay, he said, Doc says, I think so, I'm reading your lips. So I think we're gonna start reading another country next week. Um, and that's that's a novel. Um, so we recommend another country. Um, and then BK says, precision breakdown, Doc. So people were really enjoying your introduction. Um, and Todd says, can you put the upcoming March in the chat? The January 13th March, which um, we did put, we put in the, there's no website yet, I don't think, but on Twitter, um, some of the main organizations organizing it are in there. Um, I put the link to, I think it's American Muslim Association or a group like that. They're one of the organizing organizations. And I put their tweet with the graphic of the event details in there. Um, Christopher Romero says, good morning. I think it's mainly because we're the later the good morning is in our time zone, the more you know they're probably either from the West Coast or they just wake up late. But Christopher says, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, Chanda says, hi, Doc and family. 
Michelle just added good morning, a West Coaster. Um, and then uh, Todd says, yeah, Todd agrees. Sunny's Blues is so very beautiful. And then he um, tried to link an audiobook version of it with an excellent reader. But um, I think you forgot to put the link in, Todd. So you might want to try again. <laughs> um, so those are all of our comments. Did you want to say anything, Mom? She says no. <laughs> um, but it's 1.20. So is there anything anyone else wants to add? I can read. I don't want to force upon any of you Sunny's Blues. So... Well, I, I think, oh, there's Kathy again. Kathy. Hey, sorry, my internet cut out, also from the West Coast, but and so things are a little early. But all I wanted to really say was underline a lot of what we were talking about, um, but also make sure we were going to make sure we included Sunny's Blues in that passage. I am really curious to hear it. But I just really liked a lot, so much of what we were saying about and especially I think, Serafina, you led on this point of like reinstilling confidence in the youth again. And I think that I'm just reflecting a lot on um, the fact that I'm now back home in California. I'm reflecting on the way my parents raised me, a lot of what we were coming on talking about today, about how the experience of youth in this moment, about going to college, all of that very, very much we've already touched upon, but just like having certain conversations with friends from home um, have been, you know, very um, eye-opening in the sense that, you know, after doing all those steps and even making the money that they wanted or getting the job they want, the, the feeling is still that um, for those who don't have a sense quite yet of like what this moment means for them, that like there are so many problems in the world and there is a sense that the main thing I really wanted to impart with them through our conversations was just that there is a way that we as a people need to, um, yeah, re-instill our sense of our confidence to even be able to come together and work through problems. And I feel like that's the beginning of something like of that kind of democratic process that I think is part of our inheritance even. And that's something that I really, really was trying to underscore for them in terms of like, like we can see ourselves in yeah in inheriting like the civil rights movement but also even all of these different anti-colonial there's just something there in terms of just making sure that um young people in this time and i think i just really appreciated what we said about the um yeah finding peace is our calling um for this moment yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and this this um i also really like that we had said a little bit earlier on when the um, genocide in Palestine was just getting underway, which is just that, like, this is a real, this is really the test, one of the first main tests of the of our generation to be able to rise to this. And I just really wanted to, I really think that that's something important oh, yeah. for us to remember. But you were about to say something, Doc. No. <laughs> I can't, I, oh, I just wanted to, oh, hi, Kathy, once again. Good to see Hi, you. Hi, Doc, once again. <laughs> when will you be back? January 3rd, very oh, soon. Good, yeah. But yeah. it's felt like a long time. <laughs> it's, it's been so long. You yeah. know, um, you know, I, I've been talking, you know, uh, from time to time with Michelle. You know, she's a great phone conversationalist. And, <laughs> uh, 
And she's been telling me about, you know, um, she's almost like a cultural anthropologist who returns to where she grew up and is analyzing the people and, you know, and this um, vast Chinese and Asian community. And, um, and it's so interesting, like, I don't know whether you experienced this, um, Kathy, when Michelle returns, I was saying to her, it seems to me that when you return, uh, certain things begin to happen. It's like you create waves. Oh, shit. And um, I referred to her, and I guess I'll have to refer to you also, Kathy, as a prodigal daughter, a daughter who goes away and returns home and, um, and is saying to everybody that you know, this is what I learned, this is what I'm doing. I'm listening to jazz. I'm, you know, like Michelle, I'm listening to Eric Dolphy and, and who is that, you know? And uh, it's so interesting how you all return back in to your communities of origin. And, and I, I guess from Michelle, she says, well, it hasn't really changed that much, but then it seems like when she comes, certain things begin to speed up or begin to happen. So it's so interesting, that is interesting. Um, and, and the other thing, I just wanted to underline this question, which I think is on the table of the, of the, inter, the new international framework, the Afro-Asian reconstitution. And this is a question, is um, the raison d'etre morally and politically and legally of the state of Israel still present? Or has the state of Israel forfeited its right to be a state? This has nothing to do with the right of the Jewish people to exist, but to exist as part of humanity. And this idea that somehow they can be the judge and jury of everybody and everything and where they can't do it through discourse or through political debate, we will buy the universities, we will buy people. Um, so yeah, so I, I wanna just emphasize that because uh, they keep talking and Biden keeps, and those keep talking about a two-state solution. You can't have a two-state solution with a Nazi militarized regime. It has to cease to exist. And if that regime, as it has evolved, ceases to exist, it's not a question, can it go back to democracy? No. Mm. That is over. Uh, that option you uh, sabotage, design the state sabotage the option of a two-state solution of, of the state of Israel living in peace and peaceful coexistence with the Arab peoples and the Muslim peoples. That has been forfeited. History must move forward without the Zionist state, but with the Jewish people, 
who still have a contribution to make to humanity as they made contributions in the past. Uh, I hope that makes sense. But that that's what I would just, that's the main thing I'd like to emphasize. And I guess the other thing, um, we enter 2024 recognizing that this year will be different than 2023 mm. uh, in many qualitatively profound ways. This will be a new moment. And perhaps uh, we talk about time a lot. Uh, we will see time sped up, and uh, and I, I, you know, I'm really hopeful. Like all of y'all are saying, that the youth of the United States and probably of the world have finally discovered their calling and their reason for being, and that was the big problem all the time and now you know it's, it's such a beautiful thing and i you know, i just want to congratulate you all on this moment because it is your moment uh and it's going to be a moment of fulfillment mm. a moment of realization uh and a, a moment of growth i mean you're going to mature in ways that no one expected you to mature as, and the world belongs to you. Yeah, Doc, um, I think you and, uh, you know, Norman Finkelstein and Noam Chomsky are the uh, only three people who I think really understand Israel pre-1956. And, uh, you know, I think it's sad that the um, the student movement doesn't have access to that history. There's no one teaching them, uh, you know. But I think that, uh, you know, on October uh, 6th or 7th, I think it's October 7th, uh, when, you know, multiple resistance groups breached the wall, it hearkened to a period of the 50s, you know, the Fedayeen period, where you know there are fighters from Syria and Jordan crossing the border, and um, it's 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 it really is a sign of the Afro-Asiatic you know reconfiguration, or you know the multipolar world coming into existence. That even you know Israel's borders just seem to disintegrate overnight. I mean that was shocking, and um, but I think uh, you know. Going back to uh, you know Norman Finkelstein, before Jeremiah published his essay on Norman Finkelstein, he asked me about Norman Finkelstein, and I said you know one of the reasons why I uh, always liked Norman Finkelstein was you know yes he was canceled by DePaul and uh, Alan Dershowitz, but then you know more sadly he was canceled again by the student movement. Because you know, after two thousand five, he sort of disappears from the talking circuit, and you know, B BDS became the popular thing. And uh, you know, from two thousand six till today, you know, the student movement is you know ninety nine percent, you know, I think including JVP at this point, on board with a one state solution. And you know, um, that means unfortunately that the Palestinian and Israeli class struggle 
might need to take place alongside each other as opposed to taking place in two separate states. Um, and I don't think this this is discussed much in in the Palestine student movement. And um, it's almost a foregone conclusion, you know, that you know Israel, and, you know, Israel may have done it to itself. You can't be a secular Jewish state and rule over an era mostly Muslim majority. And uh, it's been it's been a long time coming because Norman Finkelstein always talks about Israel mowing the lawn, and each each gen, you know each attack has been worse and worse and worse. But um, wait, can I ask a question? What is the Israeli Palestinian class struggle? Well, I think that uh, you know, and Doc and I have talked about this before that um, the, the vast majority of the student movement supports a one-state solution uh which means that israelis and i think it's you know it's a it's a libertarian solution because it's a, it's opposed to palestinians setting up their own state you know navigating uh a socialist future themselves and instead you know you have something which i think a lot of palestinians and israelis don't want which is them coexisting under the same sovereign which is what the slogan, you know, from the river to the sea means. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, what do, what does the student movement mean, you know, from the river to the sea? Uh, you know, I've heard some students describe it as, uh, you know, they want a single nationality state with just a Palestinian nationality and no Zionist nationality. Um, or, but most people refer to it as a, you know, a binational state. But uh, I think that as law, a lot of Palestinians and Israelis would not like to govern each other or exist under the same laws and would rather, you know, choose their own destiny separately as two separate nations. Um, it's just something, it's just something I think about a lot. But, you know, Norman Finkelstein was the only voice who was saying, you know, no, this is what international law prescribes. And, you know, for that, he was, he was canceled. And um, he wasn't on the speaking tour, uh, you know, in the late 2000s. Like, you didn't even hear his name. I think he's only recently surged back to popularity uh, because he never strayed, you know, from his convictions. But I think a big, the big difference that Jeremiah pointed out was that he didn't, he doesn't take, you know, in Jeremiah's essay is Norman Finkelstein never touches on the moral aspect yeah. of conflict. Yeah. There is no spiritual dimension to Norman Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. He's just, he's very legalistic. I think that's that's the shortcoming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to mention when you had when you were talking about that to me, that's interesting because Black Reconstruction um, came in my mind because and. I guess we had also mentioned this topic about the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is something that is a possibility, mm -hmm. whether or could be a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Meaning, is it a possibility from the top down or is it a possibility from the bottom up? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that in Black Reconstruction, 
the Civil War this happened. This is very interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, but the Civil War happened because of slavery, because of the slave. Mm -hmm. okay. It didn't happen because mm -hmm. of something mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And even so, with the states that are taking Trump off of the ballot, mm -hmm. it and I was listening to some responses somewhere, I forget, but it, it was interesting the, you know, the way people were relating to that decision. I don't know in full if it pushes more people towards Trump or not, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I guess they were just talk, talking to people within those states. But it does bring up the question, I guess, Emily, you were bringing up earlier about the Constitution and, you know, like how a democracy is run specifically. But I only bring that up to when you're mentioning Samir about the two state, one state solution in Israel mm -hmm. is because mm -hmm. if America was a true democracy to its word, mm -hmm. it also means that it's people like our people, white and black, like there would not be racism. There mm -hmm. would not be right. no in effect. Yes, that's a very interesting, um, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. managed, Mm -hmm. separation between mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. both by mm -hmm. war like the military budget and where money would you know basically mm -hmm. not go which mm -hmm. is like to mm -hmm. the american people to industry to mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and that would also mean that if america is what it should be then in a sense there wouldn't really be this israeli pro this nazi problem basically. Um, but what I'm also thinking is that if America is what it should be, then it would provide an example to this situation if it still is, if it still would have occurred in this way to the Palestinian and Israeli people, how to become one after not seeing each other in a, in a similar sense as one. Because I saw a video of this Israeli girl. She was in the IDF. She was like, yeah, they have to die. Like they need to, and she was like 17 something. And I was like, this girl looks ugly, like mm -hmm. ugly. Mm -hmm. But you only, she only is able to exist because of what she, how she was raised, how she was no born. Question. No what was her conception? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back yeah. to her conception, yeah, which has right. nothing really to do that's with the right. parents, that's right. but everything to do with the state. Uh-huh, uh -huh. very um, interesting. Can I just say something? See, and that's a, that, that relates to what we do, because if you shut off the option to humanity, to love, if from infancy I predetermine or overdetermine the trajectory of your life by cutting off or shutting off the option of love, the option of seeing humanity. That is a, a young girl who lives in a prison of hatred mm -hmm. and, and self-reference. The only thing that matters to her are the quote Jewish people, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, a people in itself and thus only itself it's it's a yeah i, I would say no, that. It's like the if hate you know. that hate produced like that. yeah or yeah yeah I yeah yeah or don't, don't do it that way or 
the hate. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'll no, I forget where that comes from. No, that was that was uh, Mike Wallace doing a documentary on the Nation of Islam. In other words, it, yeah, yeah, that, that, anyway. that, that doesn't fit what we're saying here. Yeah. No, I guess not. But uh, you know, another thing. But if, you can't apply it. No, no. Okay, I, but go. We'll leave, leave that alone. alone. We'll talk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing too. That video that I thought was interesting that when I was thinking was like, she's on the world stage now, hun. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, she's not just speaking mm -hmm. to, because this was on this um, internet stream thingy called Omegle, which is where mm -hmm. like you are on video and then random people kind of come up and you just have like, you know, a lot of prank videos mm -hmm, come up mm -hmm, after this. Mm -hmm. So basically, she was recorded and now everybody sees this girl talking about how she killed two quote unquote Hamas wow. and that they deserve to die. Mm -hmm. And she was sitting next to her friend, like, and you know, mm -hmm. so yeah, uncovered, you know, you uncover all the dirt. And now, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. what person she would be come. Mm -hmm. It's gonna um, take a lot of uh, work on her. Meaning that mm -hmm. she would either have to do it or, so yeah. like the whole yeah. that whole process mm -hmm. of unification mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. something to what you're saying doc about mm -hmm. this calling of peace that our generation yeah. is facing yeah. to unify yeah. amongst these conditions um like actually kathy just said it anyway like unit unif yeah because you're talking about how people can come together and that in your case, when you're speaking towards familial, but like that's all wrapped up into like how, you know, people will, people will face this kind of question and how specifically um, politics or like, you know, political movements should be organized around. Basically, peace, unity, are at the forefront I of it. I agree with that. I agree. And with that. well, so then it gets back to what we we're saying before: how can we do that? Well, you have to go through King. Well, you have to go through Baldwin. That whole thing. But that's an interesting conundrum that you're saying, um, Samir, because it's um, it's not completely worked out, and it'll be it'll be a qualitatively new thing when it is reached. And I don't think that. I think that there's a way to learn uh, from history how it could be worked out, but yet I don't know if it'll just be by like a certain book that you know everything will be worked out too. You know what I'm I'm only saying that because mm -hmm. not because it's really important, but just mm -hmm. because you never really know what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think Norman Finkelstein was on uh someone's podcast because now he's on a lot of stuff i think it was uh brianna joy and um he was saying that all these arguments that israelis make against you know palestinian freedom are the same arguments that you know we're using the jim crow south that we're used in south africa that oh if and i'm sure that israeli girl would say like oh well if we give the palestinians a state they'll just you know keep on wanting to fight us and they'll kill us and that's what white settlers said in said in Africa 
was set in South Africa and that movement. But I, I think like to what you were saying about like, there is no book on how to do this. Um, you know, we have the model of the South African resistance and, you know, sometimes even the word apartheid is slapped on Israel, even though Noam Chomsky says it doesn't apply uh, because, you know, the Israelis, they don't want South Africans for their labor. Uh, you know, they want to get rid of Palestinians or the, the Israelis don't want Palestinians for their labor. They want to completely get rid of Palestinians and move them. Um, but even the BDS system is modeled after uh, boycotting South Africa. But it, it just goes to show that there's more ideological work to be to be done here because this is a new this is a new setup. You know, if we had the playbook for South Africa, then you know, why isn't it working? Why isn't it a question of let's just do the work, throw on a couple protests, and you know, call it a day, do a truth and uh, reconciliation thing, or do some sort of UN partition. There has to be some working out of you know what will happen to the six hundred thousand settlers in the West Bank. What will happen to you know a non-contiguous Palestine if it's two states? How will you know Palestinians go from Gaza to the West Bank, and how will they bring back you know their people from Qatar, from Jordan, from Syria, from Lebanon, and the diaspora? What will happen to the refugees who have a right to return to their homeland in forty-eight Palestine? but that that right probably won't be granted to them under a two-state solution because you can't have palestinians in you know what is considered you know 67 borders of israel that they don't you know they're discriminated against and they're they're not given equal rights in, in an israeli state um our last comment in free school is by someone named fired play who says i can't remember but i think free school was the one of, was one of the streams that turned me on to du bois i can't thank you enough been reading black reconstruction and it has changed everything for me thanks but those are all of our comments so i guess maybe we can say uh, farewell for this year and just wish everybody has a happy new year. And uh, I guess we'll see everybody next week. We'll be in person next week. So, okay. So everyone purchase your copies of Another Country. Um, and yep, so Happy New Year, and we'll see you all in 2024. Bye.